Chapter 16. Gone. No! Betty cried, horrified. You can't take the bag! After what they had lost, she wasn't about to lose this too. She darted forward and snatched it from a crate where Charlie had left it. Curiously, Jared didn't seem bothered. Of course I can. Jared cast a wolfish look at Fliss. I can do anything I want now. He gave Charlie a little shake, like there might be money rattling inside her. Pumpkin here can take me anywhere. She can't. Fliss's voice was low, terrified. We can't leave Crowstone. If we do... It's true, Betty added, struggling to speak above a whisper as the danger of Jared's intentions set in. She had thought things couldn't get any worse. Another mistake. If we leave, we die. We're... Cursed. Jared cut in, his voice dripping with sarcasm. I heard. He smirked. It's amazing the things you can learn just by keeping quiet. Jared had been busy, thought Betty, not just wriggling free of his bonds, but listening too. If it even exists, did you really believe this fool could help you break it? He lured you here with lies, Jared said cruelly, and you fell for them. Luckily for me, he's too much of a coward to use the bag, but I'm not. You're not having it, Betty said in as fierce a voice as she could manage. But instead of sounding like a tiger, she sounded like a feeble kitten. Take the boat and take your chances on the water. Jared grinned down at Charlie. I'd say my chances are very, very good. He's got no intention of letting us go, Betty thought. Hopelessness seeped through her. Jared knew his freedom would cost lives, and it was a price he was happy to pay. Did you hear anything we just said? Colton's voice rose. She'll die! Jared tilted his head to one side, considering. How soon would she die? By sunset, Fliss said hoarsely. He nodded. Good. That gives me a whole day to get as far away as possible. Plenty of snappy little journeys, so I'll get my use out of you. But she's just a child, Fliss gasped. How could you? Charlie stopped struggling and glanced at Betty, then Fliss. Will it... will it hurt? She asked, trembling. This can't be happening, Betty screamed silently. It can't, but it is, and all because of me. Tears streamed down Fliss's face. She reached out to comfort Charlie, but Jared snatched her away. You're despicable. Colton took a step towards Jared, his eyes blazing. And you're not leaving this island with her. I won't let you. Nor will I. Betty stepped closer to Colton, feeling something that was almost gratitude. He might be a lying swine, but she could see from his own horror that he wasn't evil. Jared towered over them both, but perhaps if they fought hard enough together, Charlie might be able to scramble free. Brave talk. Jared's voice hardened. But in the time it'd take for you to reach me, an arm can easily be snapped. The words stopped Betty and Colton in their tracks. Won't do it, Charlie snarled tearfully. Jared grabbed her collar as she went to bite him again and shook her. Fury, red and blazing, seared through Betty's fear at the sight of her little sister being handled like a rat and the threats being made. Don't you dare hurt my sister! Jared looked bored. 
No one needs to get hurt, as long as they do as I say. I won't take you anywhere. Charlie cussed, using words she could only have heard from Granny. And if you break my arm, I can't work the bag, can I, stupid? True, Jared agreed. He glowered down at Charlie, who glowered back up at him equally as fiercely. But I never said it would be your arm. His free hand shot out and seized Fliss, twisting her arm behind her back. She cried out, knees buckling. Charlie stopped squirming and held still. Let her go, please. That's better. Jared relaxed his hold on Fliss a little. So, now I know how to get this little savage to do as she's told. We'll have some extra company. Sweet Cheeks here can keep the brat under control. He paused, chuckling. Although, she's mighty nice to look at, too. Then take me as well, Betty cried, for the thought of her two sisters being whisked away to their fate and leaving Betty alone was too terrible to take. I don't think so, Jared eyed Colton. You keep the one with a smart mouth. If she's as clever as she thinks she is, she'll break the curse before sunset, won't she? No, Charlie yelled, reaching for Betty. No, no, no. Now, let's try this the nice way, shall we? Jared ruffled Charlie's hair in an almost fatherly gesture. When you're ready, pumpkin, take us to Windy Bottom. He held out a hand to Betty, motioning for the bag. Gritting her teeth, Betty handed it over. His voice changed, becoming harsher. Any mischief, taking us back to the prison or somewhere else you've dreamed up, anywhere but where I've said, and it won't be your pretty sister's arm, I snap. It'll be her neck. Charlie's bottom lip trembled. Strands of tangled hair stuck to the tears on her face. Betty? Die now or die later. Betty stared back at her sisters helplessly. We can't win, she realised. If we leave Crowstone, we die. If we don't obey Jared. Just, just do it. Her voice broke. Just take him wherever he wants to go. But, but the curse, Fliss began. Do as he says, Betty whispered. It will be all right. As she said it, she felt hopeless, as though something inside her had broken beyond repair. Nothing was all right. If only she had never listened to Colton. Her sisters were going to die because of her. And Cranny. Her heart ached. How would she ever tell Granny what she had caused? It's not all right. Fliss was fighting tears, holding them back. Just... For Charlie's sake, Betty was sure. I'll figure it out. Betty was babbling now, grasping at the thinnest of hopes. I'll put all this right, I swear it. She gave Fliss a meaningful look. If Fliss could keep her wits about her, then there was a chance she could use the mirror to tell Betty where they were. And then, somehow, Betty would have to find them, though she didn't have the first clue how. All she knew was that she didn't want Fliss and Charlie to give up, which meant she couldn't either. Betty took a deep breath and addressed Jared. As for you, when I catch up with you, and don't think I won't, you'll pay for this. Jared smiled, not threatened in the least. Promises, promises. 
He bent down to Charlie, who glared at him hatefully. Now listen, Pumpkin, he said softly. When I hand you this bag, you're going to take us to the place I just told you about. Do you remember what it's called? Windy Bottom, Charlie growled. Very good. He straightened up with a warning look at Betty. Stand back. She refused to look at him, instead focusing on what might be her last look at her two sisters. Too late, she realised she had spent her life wishing for bigger things, for what could be bigger than family, than love and being loved. What use was adventure with no one to share in it? Along with Granny, her sisters were all she had, her whole world, which was about to be torn away and opened up to the curse the very thing they'd been trying to undo. Now, with one command, Jared was about to set the terrible event into motion. I'll find you, she promised, stumbling back. Though it was meant with every fibre, they all knew that finding them would not be enough. Even if she could save them from Jared, the curse would still kill them. Wherever you go, I'll find you. In a voice that suddenly sounded weary and much older, Charlie spoke quietly. Windy Bottom. In an eye blink, the three figures were gone. The only proof they had ever been there were their footprints in the sand. Betty's vision blurred, and no matter how hard she tried to stop crying or to tell herself that tears wouldn't bring her sisters back, she was helpless to do anything but sob. Her sisters were gone, and the curse had been triggered. Unless Betty found a way to break it, Charlie and Fliss would be dead by sunset. Chapter 17 The Devil's Teeth A minute passed, or perhaps two, she couldn't tell, and yet time was more important now than ever before. Time was her sisters' lives, and it was ticking away. Bringing them back before sunset wouldn't save them, unless Betty found a way to undo the curse. But at least she'd get to see them again. Perhaps that was the best she could hope for. She was crying so hard that she never saw Colton moving closer to her. The touch of his hand on her arm came as a surprise. She blinked away her tears, sniffing. He patted her awkwardly, the actions of someone who had forgotten how to be near people, but the fact that he was trying brought her some small comfort. I'm sorry, he whispered. I'm so, so sorry. This is all my fault. I should never have brought you here. I lied, but I never wanted any of you to get hurt. You have to believe me. I do, she managed between sobs. Colton had acted despicably, but she knew he had done so out of desperation, and despite the fact he had tricked them, she had seen his disgust when Jared had announced his plan. More than that, he had tried to stop it. For this, she couldn't hate him, even if she didn't forgive him. It was Jared who had triggered the curse, not Colton. It's not over yet, she thought. There's still time before sunset. Time to at least get my sisters out of Jared's clutches and stop him getting away with this. And snivelling in a cave wasn't going to save any of them. She stopped crying and steeled her voice. I need that boat. Colton gaped. The boat? Surely you're not. I'm going after them. 
But you can't leave Crowstone. You know what that would mean. You could go back to your granny, try and get help from the warders, tip them off somehow. There's no time, Betty snapped. It's hours before the first ferry. I have to help my sisters and break the curse before it's too late. If it even can be broken. My father once told me that everything that's made can be broken, Colton said softly, and most things that are broken can be mended. There has to be a way. Betty nodded wretchedly. Why couldn't I have just lived with staying in Crowstone? She asked herself. Charlie and Fliss could have. But because she hadn't accepted it, they might not live at all. Deep down, she couldn't let go of the hope that the Widdishin's curse could be undone. The question is, can I do it in time? We, Colton exhaled shakily, can we do it in time? We, she croaked, I'm coming with you. But why? You know why. I'm responsible for this. If your sisters die, I wouldn't be able to live with myself. He shrugged helplessly. Besides, there's only one boat. Betty bit back a sarcastic remark. She didn't doubt Colton's guilt, but saving his own neck was still his driving force, though she couldn't really blame him. Crowstone punishments were always harsh. The penalty for escaping was death. Helping someone escape meant prison time, usually followed by banishment to torment. All right. In her mind's eye, she pictured the maps she had spent so many hours poring over. Finally, they had paid off. Windy Bottom is north, not too far from Marshfoot on the other side of the water. Once we're across, we'll need a faster way to travel, but I'd say we can make it by late morning. If we make it across the water alive, she thought grimly. The question is, will Jared still be there? With the bag, he could be anywhere in an instant. If that was the first place he thought of, then he must have links to it, Colton said thoughtfully. Perhaps he grew up there or had family. My guess is he'll hide out for a while. What makes you so sure? Colton chewed his lip, considering. Because Jared never planned any of this. Everything that happened to him tonight happened by chance. He's thinking as he goes along, which means he's more likely to stick with what he already knows. Betty nodded reassured a little, and surprised to be taking comfort from Colton. And if he's gone when we arrive? Let's worry about that when we get there. If they're gone, someone may have seen them or know something that could help us. Then let's go, said Betty. Colton heaped more sacking into the bottom of the boat. The prison patrol will already be on the water looking for Jared and me. Betty gazed out to the water, a ribbon of moonlight shimmering on the choppy surface. The shingle between the cave and the water had narrowed, the waves creeping closer. They seemed to be beckoning, urging her to her sisters, but they could have just as easily been luring her in, waiting to swallow her. Her pulse quickened. Look, the tide is rising. Colton glanced round in alarm, then began loading things into the boat more quickly. Let it come. We need the tide. She watched the flow of the water rising, then curling back, daring them to take the gamble. It's our only chance of clearing the devil's teeth. Some of Colton's confidence trickled away. The devil's teeth? I told you there were rocks. 
Worry began to build in the pit of Betty's stomach. Deadly rocks. There's a reason these caves are called the Three Widows, because of all the shipwrecks. Smugglers used to hide here at low tide and shine lights to guide the boats in. They'd hit the rocks and sink, and their cargo would wash ashore. She paused, watching the choppy water rushing up the shingle. You can't see the rocks too well at night, just the water breaking over them. But they're there, under the surface. She swept her arm in a wide arc, formed in a crescent shape, like a moon or... Jaws with teeth, Colton finished, as cheerful as the rest of Lament then. Have you ever rowed a boat? Colton threw the oars in the boat. Not for years. Betty's chest tightened. She knew from stories of sinking ferries that crossing the water with an experienced boatman could still be dangerous. Crossing the water with a novice was madness, but what choice did she have? Abandoning Fliss and Charlie wasn't an option. Together, they heaved the boat down to the shingle and got in. Colton handed Betty a wad of sacking to wrap around her shoulders as she sat on the narrow bench. Betty stared over the side of the boat at the shingle and the slimy mud oozing beneath it. How many lives had the rocks claimed over the years? Too many to count, that was for sure. And now she and Colton were about to grapple with them too. As she watched, murky water trickled over the pebbles, slicking them with moisture. The tide was coming in, faster now. She swallowed, but stayed silent. Would she ever see the poacher's pocket again? Or would her final moments be spent with a stranger, fighting for their lives on the devil's teeth? She wondered if Granny had discovered the girls were gone, or whether she'd only find out in the morning. Granny. Betty tried to remember the last time she had hugged her. If only she had known things would come to this, she would have made it a little longer, a little tighter. The water was lapping around the boat now. It lurched suddenly. Betty gripped the side, steadying herself, as Colton dug an oar into the shingle, pinning the boat where it was. Not yet, he muttered, squinting across the water to where several jagged rocks were breaking the water's surface. Not until those final devil's teeth had been swallowed. He handed Betty the other oar. Here. She took it, thrusting it into the sludgy water below them, holding it tight. The boat bobbed, eager to take to the waves, but she angled the oar, resisting its pull until her arms throbbed. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. And just when she thought she would have to let go, Colton said, Now! He took the oar from her, and she heard a gulping glug as he pulled it from the sludge and began rowing. Betty glanced back as the cliff face moved away from them. The three widows watched them, the yawning blackness of the caves like faces covered over with mourning veils. Her stomach lurched, not from the water, but from the fear of what lay under it, those treacherous, jagged rocks that were just waiting to tear into the boat's wooden flesh. Let me help you, she cried. I can row. No, I need your eyes on the water, Colton grunted. Look for the teeth breaking the surface. If you can see any, then we need to hold back. There's a current pulling us towards the rocks. Betty rushed to the front of the boat. She trained her eyes on the inky water, familiarising herself with the push and pull until she was able to see the little spots where the water ebbed differently. 
There! She pointed, panic rising up in her throat. There's one just ahead, breaking the surface. How far? Colton asked urgently. Not very, a stone's throw. She waited as the retreating tide swept back over the glistening shard of rock, hiding it. For as far back as she could remember, there had always been drownings and accidents in this cove. Lungs filled with water, heads bashed on rocks. She sensed the three widows watching, ready to mourn. Will the water rise higher if we can hold off? Colton asked. He strained against the oars, rowing backwards now to keep them on the spot. Sweat shimmered above his eyebrows. Betty glanced back to the shore, her gaze locking on to a layer of crusted seaweed partway up the cliff face. The water had almost reached its full height here. Maybe a little, but not enough to get us over the rock. Our only chance is to use the waves, but you'll need my help. Rowing is hard, Colton said. I need to know you're up to it. I'm up to anything if it stops us getting smashed to smithereens, she said indignantly. Give me an oar. Colton passed one to her. Face the caves. It'll be easier to row, and one of us needs to be looking that way for this to work. Betty took the oar, less confident now she was no longer holding the edge of the boat. She shifted her weight, trying to get her balance. The oar was heavy, and with the waves growing ever choppier, it felt as though the water was sucking on it, trying to draw her into its murky depths. The boat began to drift. Row, then! Colton snapped. All right, she retorted hotly, dragging the oar through the water in the same direction as Colton. Immediately she found it was harder than it looked, but she gritted her teeth and found the rhythm. Colton nodded approvingly. Good, now I'll watch the front of the boat. You watch the waves breaking by the caves and count how long it takes for them to wash back and clear the rocks. Betty nodded. With a bit of luck and a lot of work, they could ride the waves, the swell giving them the lift they needed over the rocks. She tried not to think of the Widdershins' track record when it came to luck. She fixed her stare on a large wave as it broke, crashing against the cliff before rolling back towards the boat and then out to sea. One, two, three... The boat lifted considerably on three, rising up on the wave before dipping... The wave carried past them and over the rocks, clearing them easily. We have to catch one of those waves, said Colton. The next big one. You ready? Betty gulped. As I'll ever be. The boat bobbed like a cork, dancing on smaller waves, like it was teasing them, testing them. Not yet, Colton murmured. Hold fast. Betty clenched her jaw, working the oar. She felt the pull of muscles rarely used between her shoulder blades, in her arms and stomach. It was an effort keeping the boat steady, and her swings of the oar in time with Colton's. She felt the next wave rise up from under them, lifting and then lowering the boat as it coursed towards the caves. Now! Betty yelled as it crashed, and with that they changed direction, pulling backwards for all they were worth. She was unable to look away from the wave as it swept into the cave before rushing back towards them and out to sea. Would it be enough? Please, let it be enough. Already the boat was moving with surprising speed. She heard Colton's breathing, rasping and ragged, and realised that she too was gasping with the effort. Glancing over her shoulder, she searched for those treacherous teeth in the water, waiting to gnash the boat to pieces. 
and when she saw four of them jutting from the water, she wished she hadn't looked. They were so close, greedy for blood and bone. They surely wouldn't make it over them. Give it all you've got, Colton roared. The boat surged upward, carried on the wave. Betty rowed with every breath and every screaming muscle. And then they were rushing out of the cove, riding the water like a great fluid dragon, and still Betty pulled the oar for all she was worth. Blisters rose on her palms, but she wouldn't let herself stop. As the wave got away from them, the boat jerked as something caught its belly from below, like a fingernail scraping a scab. Colton gasped, reaching out to grab her. Together they froze as the water's surface calmed. For a moment, neither of them moved, then slowly, Betty turned to face him. We made it. Colton's voice was incredulous. I can't believe we made it. Betty peered back through the darkness, searching the water. The pointed tip of a rock jutted from the surface, like a skittle that refused to fall. Colton crouched down, running his hand along the bottom of the boat. Can't feel any leaks, he said hesitantly. But that was close. Too close, Betty whispered. Her hands were still clamped around the oar. She realised she was shaking. How narrowly they had escaped. The devil's teeth had had a taste of the boat, but not quite managed to swallow it. She stared at Colton, seeing her own relief mirrored back at her. It remained unsaid, but Betty was certain he knew as well as she did that strangely the experience had bound them somehow, for neither of them would have made it without the other. Silently, Colton took the oar from her and began to row further out, the job easier now they were away from the pull of the cove's currents. Betty stayed frozen where she was, teeth chattering. Ahead, she saw only a vast expanse of water. Behind, Lament was blocking any signs of life from mainland Crowstone. She stared, waiting and hoping to see the lights in the distance, and the irony was not lost on her that she now longed for a last glimpse of home, of the place she'd waited so long to escape from. She had always thought this moment would be a victory. Instead, she was with a stranger and stood to lose everything she cared about. She had never felt more lost. She blew into her numb fingers, trying to coax warmth back into them. How long before we reach land on the other side? Colton asked. Betty squeezed her eyes shut, recalling past trips to repent on the ferry and the timetable for Marshfoot. Hard to say. A couple of hours, probably, if we're going further inland. What time was it now? Midnight? Later? She had no idea. The night had stretched for what felt like forever. How many hours until sunrise, when they would no longer have the cover of night to hide them? Each hour that passed was an hour closer to her sister's deaths, and her own, now that she was leaving Crowstone too. She had thought she would feel different, more afraid, yet all she could think of was Charlie's and Fliss's faces, painted with horror, and Jared's cunning, broken smile. If they were going to die, it couldn't be afraid and alone with him. Are you going to tell me what he did? Huh? Jared, you said he was dangerous. 
Her voice quavered. And now he has my sisters. I need to know what we're up against. Colton hesitated, deepening Betty's fears. Tell me. All right. He... He kills people. I mean, killed people. He was a lifer in that place. He would never have been released, so the warders say. Kills people? Betty asked faintly. For money. Colton's disgust was plain. There were no limits to what he'd do, or who he'd do them to. Revenge, money owed, whatever the reason, he'd do it. His voice hardened. He's a monster. Last year there was a riot. Jared broke one warder's legs and almost killed another. They say his youngest victim... Stop! Betty cried. The memory of her sister's terrified faces swam before her, their panic becoming hers. How ready Jared had been to hurt Fliss to get what he wanted. He could make them do anything, Betty realised. His biggest weapon was their love for each other. I can't bear to hear any more. Hey. Colton stopped rowing, touching her arm. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to frighten you, but you asked. For what it's worth, I don't think he'll hurt them as long as they're useful. And that bag makes them very, very useful. This was the one grain of comfort Betty had to cling to. What if we don't find them? Saving them from Jared is just the start. Her throat closed as tears swam in her eyes. She had wanted so badly to change things. Though Fliss had always been content at home, breaking the curse could have meant more for Charlie. Happier memories of growing up and visiting new places. Tonight could mean no more memories made for any of them. Betty had changed things all right. At least if she failed, she wouldn't have to live with the guilt over her sister's deaths, because she would die with them. You need to get that bag, Colton said thoughtfully. Once you have it, Charlie can get you anywhere and fast. Then you can search for answers. If we knew where to look, Betty croaked, all I can think is that the answer to breaking the curse must be in Crowstone, if that's where it all began. Colton stayed silent for a moment. Then he nodded to the bundle of rags in the bottom of the boat. You should lie down and rest. You're going to need your strength. Betty shook her head. I couldn't possibly sleep. My tummy is all tied up in knots for one thing, and for another it's too bleeding cold. Lie down anyway, Colton said gruffly. At least it'll be warmer in the blankets. Reluctantly, Betty lowered herself into the jumble of sacking. They smelled fishy and stale, but were dry at least. Her mind churned over the events of the night, chopping and changing with the waves. Unexpectedly, something came back to her. Earlier, just before Jared turned up, you said you knew something else about the tower. What was it? When we first met in the prison, I told you the curse began in the tower, he continued. I, I told your granny the same thing. Whether it's true or not, I don't know. So another lie. Wait, just hear me out. Colton paused to wrap scraps of rag around his palms, then took the oars again. During the summer, a handful of us were chosen to clear the tower out, make repairs, that sort of thing. Wasn't anyone being kept in there? Betty asked. Not anymore. Rumour has it that no one's been held in there since that girl flung herself from the window, the one they called a witch. 
Sorsha Spellthorn, Betty whispered. As soon as you go in there, you can feel it's not right. On the surface, it's like any other cell, cold, cobwebs, a threadbare bed. But in that place, it's the walls that really tell a story. What? What was on the walls? Betty asked. Words. There was a sheen of sweat on Colton's face now. They made us paint them. Covered in words, they were. She'd started marking the days she'd been locked in there, along with these four words. Malice, injustice, betrayal, escape. Just those same words, over and over, scrawled until they were barely readable. Until, right by the window, there was only... Only what? One word. He hesitated. Widdershins. Widdershins? Betty sat up, tense. Are you sure? He nodded. I know what I saw. Anticipation flared like a beacon within. If this was true, Sorsha Spellthorn had been linked to the Widdershins. This had better not be another one of your lies, Colton. It's not, I swear. He stopped rowing and stared at her in earnest. What reason would I have to lie to you now? Betty found she was gripping the edge of the sacking. She could think of no motive for Colton to lie. He'd had what he wanted from them. More importantly, what he'd said fitted like a puzzle piece into the rest of the information she had about Sorsha. Someone who could work magic and had scratched her family's name into the walls of Crowstone Tower as the result of some deep-rooted grudge. She felt certain this was it, the beginning of the curse. By the end of that first day, the place looked completely different, Colton continued. Cobwebs gone, the bed cleared out and the walls freshly painted. But the next day we were hauled back again and from the way the warders were whispering, we knew something was wrong. And when we entered that tower room the second day, we knew. Knew what? Knew the place was cursed. We thought it was a trick at first. Some of the warders would take any chance to scare us or make our time there as unpleasant as they could. But we could see they were as shocked as we were. Because the entire room was exactly as it had been the morning before. Every word on the walls, every last cobweb, like we'd never lifted a finger. Two days ago, Betty would have scoffed at this. Now the words easily conjured up an icy foreboding. So we did it again. Only that second day we worked twice as fast and twice as hard. My knuckles bled from scrubbing those walls. I wanted to get out of there just like everyone else. But the next day, just like before, it was all back. And that time, they didn't make us try again. So it's just left, the way it was when Sorsha Spellthorn was there? Betty asked. That's more than a century. Colton nodded. They can do nothing with it. Can't empty the place, can't knock it down. It's like her death left a stain on it. Betty's dread deepened. A stain or a curse? Sorsha Spellthorn wasn't just some story. She'd been a real person, desperate and angry enough to fling herself from the tower. Whatever her powers, they hadn't saved her. There's something I don't understand. If Sorsha was a sorceress, why didn't she use magic to escape? That's one of the mysteries of the place, Colton said. There had to be something about that tower that rendered her powerless. 
Did you tell my father? Betty asked, about the name being carved into the wall. No, it all happened after he'd been moved. But by then, I knew about the travelling bag and what it could do, so... Betty pounced. How? How did you know about the bag? You never did explain that. The first time I saw it, it was being used by your granny to hit your father round the head, he admitted. Nothing strange about that, Betty replied. She'd seen granny do that more than once. She was in his cell at the time. But visitors aren't allowed. Betty stopped. Of course, the only way Granny could have visited their father's cell was in the same way she and her sisters had reached Colton's. She was using the bag to visit him in secret. Only once that I knew of, said Colton, in the middle of the night, and she made it pretty clear it wouldn't be happening again. Why would she risk that? It was just after he found out he was getting moved. They were whispering, arguing. Betty nodded. Granny and father always bickered about everything. She felt a tiny thrill laced with longing at the thought of Granny visiting in secret. How daring she was, how like Betty in more than their bluntness. He was asking her to get him out, said Colton, to visit his girls one last time before he moved. At first I didn't pay much attention. I thought he was being dramatic, that he could just as easily be visited wherever he was getting moved to. I was more interested in how an old woman had got into the cells in the middle of the night, so I crept out of bed and watched through the bars. That's when she walloped him with the bag and told him he couldn't risk coming home. They quietened down after that, and I struggled to hear, but two words that kept rising up were bag and curse. They argued some more, getting louder. Other prisoners started to wake, and that's when I saw her put her hand in the bag. The next moment, she'd gone, disappeared completely. I couldn't sleep after that, not till sunrise. After waking, I almost convinced myself it was a dream, but something in me knew what I'd seen was real. A week later, your father was transferred out, and so... So from that, you plotted the whole thing, Betty finished. There was something sickening about knowing he had used her family's misfortune for his own gain. But then, she reminded herself, she had done shameful things to get what she wanted, too. She had lied and stolen, not from strangers, but her own family. Perhaps that made her a bigger wretch than he was. He nodded. I wrote to your granny at the poacher's pocket and said I had information for her. It was enough to bring her to the prison. For you to start weaving your lies. Yes. Colton spoke quietly, his words threaded with shame. I knew it was wrong but I told myself I was surviving. Abruptly, he stopped rowing and sat up straighter. The boat continued to slide through the water in silence. What is it? asked Betty. Colton stared past her, his eyes narrowed. I thought I saw something. Betty turned to look over her shoulder. She met with a chilling sight. Thick grey fog was slowly creeping towards them over the water, Jumping jackdaws, she breathed in horror. We'll never find our way out of that. We may not have to, Colton said grimly. Betty frowned. What? Then she saw it, a light straining through the hazy, foggy darkness, growing bigger, getting closer. Is that... A boat, Colton finished. 
He drew in the oars and stowed them, then crouched down next to her. It must be the warders. Quickly, get down! Chapter 18 Hostage Betty ducked into the belly of the boat, her nostrils filled with the smell of stale fish and old nets. Do you really think it's the waters? She whispered. Could it be someone else? A fishing boat, perhaps? We'd have to be lucky, very lucky. The warders are probably checking every boat in case Jared or me are on it. Colton's words were rushed, tumbling over each other. Perhaps we could capsize the boat and hide under it, but even then the water would only finish us off, unless... His dark brows furrowed in concentration. They're only looking for me, not you. If you were caught, you wouldn't be in any trouble. Except the Widdershin's name is linked to yours in the visiting book and has been for months, Betty said at once. And I'm 13 years old. They take me straight home. She rolled onto her knees, keeping her head low. We've come too far now. I'm not giving up and going back to Crowstone. I'm finding my sisters, with or without you. She reached into her pockets and took out the nesting dolls. Up till now, there had been no need for Colton to know about them. But now she had no choice. They needed to hide. Using her fingernails, she prized the first one apart, then removed the next. Colton's eyes widened. What are those? Something's going to save our skin. How? We're going to vanish. Vanish? You mean disappear? Exactly. Colton's eyes raked over the dolls. They're magical, just like the bag, aren't they? Betty nodded. And they're our only chance now. If the warders can't see us, then they can't catch us, right? She looked at him desperately, willing him to agree. If they think it's just a drifting boat, they might pass us by. Colton's face was stacked with doubt. They could just as easily tow the boat back to shore. Maybe, Betty admitted, but it would still buy us some time to figure out another idea. We have a better chance this way, surely. Better chance of what? Colton hissed, ending up back where we started. He glanced back, shaking his head violently, and Betty glimpsed the resolve in his face. Colton had as much to lose as she did, and he wasn't quitting. It lent her strength. He peered over the side of the boat, eyes glinting with reflective light, before dropping back down, breathing hard. They're close now. Two of them rowing, I think. Did they see you? Betty asked. She fumbled with the smaller dolls, panic making her clumsy. Don't think so. He nodded at the dolls. Just do it. Make us disappear. Betty finally managed to open the second and third dolls, her frozen fingers trembling. I need something of yours, quickly. A strand of hair, piece of jewellery, something like that. I don't have anything like that. Colton gave her a fierce look. Her eyes swept over him, his closely shorn hair, the rags he wore that barely classed as clothing. No jewellery, of course. She glanced at his hands, seeing only fingernails so chewed they were bleeding in places. For crow's sake, she muttered, then spied a corner of his tunic collar that was coming unstitched. With no time to think about it, she rolled closer and tore at it with her teeth. The taste of old sweat filled her mouth. Ugh! She spat the scrap into the lower half of the third doll, then clamped the top half of the doll in place, carefully lining up the intricate painted patterns on the outside. You're all savages, you Widdishins girls, Colton muttered in bemusement. 
Don't let Fliss hear you say that. Anyway, we all got our bad habits from Granny. She placed the doll inside the second one, biting off her thumbnail and flicking that in too, once again taking care to line up the two halves exactly. Finally, she placed them into the largest one. He waited. Now what? Betty held the nesting dolls tightly to her chest, wishing she could hide the thundering of her heartbeat. Now nothing, she whispered. We can't be seen. You sure? Already Colton was leaning over the side of the boat. Hey, my reflection is gone. He turned to her in confusion. But I can still see you. She nodded, and we can still be heard and felt. She stopped speaking at the sound of oars splashing through the water. Lifting a warning finger to her lips, she curled herself into the boat's seat. Colton was too tall for this, so instead lay back silently along the opposite side of the boat, mirroring the curve of the wood. They waited. It was the fog that found them first, thick and fish-belly grey, reaching over their heads like a shroud. The slap of oars on water grew louder, then stopped as the approaching boat cut through the water. It bumped into them without warning, causing Betty to bite her tongue. Something cold rattled under her elbow. Lifting her arm, she found a fish hook, pointed and sharp. If they were caught, perhaps it could act as a weapon. She tucked it into her sleeve, alarmed at her own ferocity. She had never hurt anyone before, but no one was going to prevent her from reaching her sisters. She would do whatever it took. Light flooded from above as a lantern was held aloft, blurring everything beyond it into grey. A man's voice cut through the mist. Empty, save for a load of old rags. Betty tensed. She knew that voice, she was sure of it. But from where? Before she could place it, a second man spoke. The oars are still in it. I could have sworn I saw movement, a figure. This voice was younger, sharper, and not one Betty recognised. There was something confident about the way he spoke. This was someone who didn't scare easily. The boat's solid. No signs of a struggle or an accident. Looks like it's been abandoned. Without warning, a hand reached past Betty's face to rummage through the supplies Colton had thrown in. Carefully, she lifted her shawl to cover her mouth, afraid the warmth of her breath might be detected in the cold air. The lantern shifted, and light played over two faces. The younger fellow had a hard, waxy face. He was dressed in a warder's uniform, and beneath a sparse moustache was an equally thin mouth that was spiteful in appearance. The other man, to Betty's astonishment, was Fingerty. What was he doing out here? Well, the warder's voice was impatient. Could the felons have been using this boat? Fingerty frowned at the oars and scratched his chin with long, thick fingernails. Yep, I mean, it's possible, but... He hesitated, glancing through the mist as though trying to decipher something. From the path we've just taken, I'd say this boat's come from Lament. The warder spat. Betty heard it hit the water. Flat. Her lip curled in revulsion. How could they have got to lament? Makes no sense. No boats were seen. None were taken from repent. At this, Betty grinned to herself, both with glee and relief. 
The only people being searched for appeared to be Colton and Jared. There was no mention of the girls, and the bag's magic had created a baffling mystery that had thrown the warders off the scent. Her smile vanished at the thought of the bag, now in Jared's possession. It was the most valuable item they'd had, and now it was out of reach, in the grasp of someone infinitely dangerous, along with something even more precious. Her sister's. Well, they got off the island somehow, Fingerty remarked dryly. Either that, or they're still there, which means the warders are crooked or useless. And you'd know all about that, wouldn't you? The warder growled. You were the most crooked one of the lot. <laughs> Fingerty snickered. Lucky for you, I was. You're the lucky one. The warder's voice dripped with contempt. As lucky as a weasel like you can be, anyway. You could be slammed away again like that. He snapped his fingers. If we thought you were up to your old tricks, or if anyone on the mainland finds out you're our eyes and ears there. He chuckled unpleasantly. And you're never too old for a beating. We own you, Fingerty. And that's the way it'll stay, unless you get yourself a good catch. A very good catch. All traces of humour left Fingerty then. His face creased back into its usual scowl, like a chicken settling to roost. Bring her back with us, the warder ordered. Can't have her floating around by herself. Never know who might come across her. Betty silently bit into her shawl. This was all going so very wrong. Being taken back to any of the islands was going to cost precious time, time they didn't have, and wherever they ended up... Colton would be in danger of being discovered. Fingerty leaned over the boat. Can't see no towing rope. Then get in and row, the warder snapped, and the lantern stays with me, so you'd better keep up. Fingerty stepped into the boat. It rocked a little under his weight, but he stayed steady, sure-footed as if he were on dry land. He remained standing, scanning the boat with a perplexed expression, Boat don't feel right, he muttered more to himself than to the warder. Using his toe, he nudged aside the blankets as though searching for something. What are you bleating about now? This boat, Fingerty repeated. It's not sitting quite right, feels heavier than it should. Betty glanced at Colton in alarm. Fingerty was an experienced boatman. He'd know exactly how an empty boat should feel when he stepped into it. Only this boat now carried the weight of three people. She wanted to scream. Why, why, why did it have to be Fingerty? If he discovered her, took her back, there would be questions, delays, and absolutely no chance of finding Charlie and Fliss before sunset. The hook trembled in her fingers. She couldn't hurt someone she knew who had helped her, could she? Probably just the timber. The warder yawned, setting the lantern down. Betty heard the scrape of wood as he picked up the oars. Nah. Fingerty stood rigid, like a dog whose hackles were up. Now to do with the timber, I'm telling her something ain't right. He shifted his weight from side to side, and Betty clutched the nesting dolls even tighter to her, afraid they would roll away or rattle. The warder gave a low, mocking chuckle. I suppose the next thing you're going to say is that it could be the weight of dead souls aboard it, that we've come across a ghost vessel drifting out and looking for fresh souls to claim. 
Shouldn't make jokes like that, Fingerty snapped. Strange things have happened out on this water. Terrible things. Just row. The water sounded bored now. It'll take more than your stories to scare me. And keep your eyes peeled. Those two cretins are out here somewhere, and I want to be the one to return them. The sound of rippling water reached Betty's ears. The warder had begun to row. Fingerty sat down, finally, breathing heavily. He grabbed the oars, then peered into the mist up ahead. As quickly as she dared, Betty slid out from under the seat behind Fingerty, taking care not to sway the boat. She raised herself up onto her knees. Already the warder's boat had vanished from sight, swallowed by the soupy fog. Slow down, Fingerty called. Then, is there a spare lantern? No, came the abrupt reply, so keep up. Fingerty began to row, cursing under his breath. Betty's hand skimmed his grizzled hair as the action propelled him back and he gave a slight shudder. With each drag of the oars, desperation surged within her. She glanced at Colton, willing him to act, to push Fingerty overboard, to do anything that would change their course away from Crowstone. But he had folded himself up so impossibly near to Fingerty's foot that he couldn't move without being discovered. All Betty could think of was her sisters getting further and further away from her. The only way she could change things and give them a chance would be to take a risk. Shoving fear aside, she leaned close to Fingerty's ear and spoke in a low, cold voice. Listen up, Fingerty, and don't make a sound. Fingerty let out a loud yelp and turned, dropping an oar. The boat lurched as he lashed out with his hand. Betty tried to move backwards but wasn't fast enough, and his fist caught her in the chest. She lost her balance and toppled, landing on the fishing nets with a heavy bump. Who's there? Fingerty yelled. His head whipped from side to side, terror in his eyes as he searched for this unseen enemy. Fingerty? The warder called. His voice was irritable, but faint, indicating that he had put some distance between himself and them. What's rattled you? Keep up, you old goat! Betty rolled onto her side, a groan escaping her. Fingerty flinched at the sound, his breath quickening in quick puffs on the misty air, and she realised how eerie her groan must have sounded to someone spooked who couldn't see her. And then she saw, as Fingerty raised the oar he still held, how fear could make someone dangerous. He swung the oar blindly, and Betty trembled as it cut through the air above her head. Fingerty! the warder bellowed. What are you doing back there? Here! he yelled. Get me off this boat! There's something on it! Betty cowered below the oar. She had hoped that Fingerty might have frozen with fear when she had spoken to him, but he had reacted far more quickly and differently than she had expected. With a gasp, Fingerty was pulled backwards as strong arms wrapped around him and pulled hard. His legs went from under him as he tripped over the bench. He landed in the bottom of the boat. By the time Betty had hauled herself up, Fingerty was on his back like a beetle, and Colton had Fingerty's arms pinned beneath his knees, with one hand holding the oar and the other clamped over Fingerty's mouth. Fingerty, of course, saw nothing except the oar hovering above his nose. Over the sound of his panicked breathing, the only thing that could be heard was the warder's oars cutting through the water, drawing ever nearer. 
Betty darted across and knelt by Fingerty, scarcely believing her own actions. She pressed the fishhook to his neck. As I was saying, she whispered fiercely, don't make a sound. Do everything we say and you won't get hurt, understand? Wide-eyed with fright, Fingerty nodded vigorously. Warily, Colton took his hand away from the man's mouth. We, Fingerty managed, are you sp spirits of the marshes? What magic is this? Not spirits, and all you need to know is this is powerful magic. Betty leaned close to Fingerty's face, so close she could smell the greasiness of his hair. Magic that could make you disappear for good. She felt mildly ashamed as Fingerty gulped, but she squashed it down. She had to get him on side in any way she could. By hook or by crook, she thought grimly, removing the sharp crescent from his neck. In a single motion, she sliced a brass button from Fingerty's overcoat. Now, here's what's going to happen, so listen carefully. She thrust the hook at Colton, then pulled out the nesting dolls and rested them apart. In a moment, you're going to vanish from sight, just like us. When the warder gets here, you say and do nothing to draw his attention. Do you hear? Again, Fingerty nodded. He licked his lips and croaked. Who? Who are you? I'm sure your voice seems familiar. You're about to find out, Betty said grimly. Now, what's that warder's name? Pike, Fingerty replied. Tobias Pike. Good. Now quiet, not one word. She searched through the mist. The sound of Pike's boat was louder, but thanks to the thickening mist, there was no sight of it yet. They still had time, just. Betty opened the nesting dolls, and Fingerty jumped with surprise as she and Colton reappeared. You, he whispered, his face contorting with shock and rage. But you're just a child, and you... You're one of the ones we're looking for. Just what is going on here? Shut up, Colton hissed. He brandished the fish hook above Fingerty's nose. You'll give us away. Fingerty clamped his lips together, watching as Betty added the severed button from his coat to the hollow space inside the dolls. That's it, Fingerty whispered. Betty nodded. None of us can be seen. Now quiet. Colton lowered the oar next to the one Fingerty had dropped, before crouching next to the old man, keeping the hook by his throat as a dangerous reminder. Betty positioned herself at the rear of the boat. Her heartbeat quickened as a dark shape loomed through the fog, and a pale orb of light floated nearer as the lantern was lifted. Fingerty? Pike growled. Where are you, you snivelling coward? I thought you knew these marshes, that you didn't scare easily. He leaned over the boat. His face creased into confusion as his eyes swept over the oars, then blindly over Fingerty and Colton, and vaguely in Betty's direction. Fingerty? He yelled wide-eyed. Fingerty! Betty's insides churned. The temptation to call out was etched on Fingerty's face, but with Colton glowering over him, his fear was stronger. Pike's own eyes narrowed. Where is the old fool? He muttered, kind of vanished into thin air. He swung the lantern about him, then back to the seemingly empty boat, making no effort to leave. Betty hesitated, 
then drew in a breath. When she released it, it was to speak in a hissing, high-pitched whisper. Tobias Spike! The warder jerked back at the sound of his name. Who, who's there? He asked in a voice that was suddenly shaky. He clutched the oar like it was a sword, but it shook like a reed in the wind. Leave this place, Tobias Spike, Betty whispered. Leave and never return, or else you will suffer a terrible fate. Pike's face drained, becoming haggard. Fingerty? He croaked, all pretense at bravery forgotten. Is this a trick? Gone, 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 Betty chanted. She was almost beginning to enjoy herself now. Pike was a bully who deserved a taste of what he dished up to others. Claimed by the spirit of the marshes. She paused dramatically. Yet still I hunger for another soul. Pike let out a strangled half-sob. He fell back and began dragging the oars through the water as though he were pulling himself out of his own grave. Within seconds, he was surrounded by the fog once more, and all that could be heard was the frantic splashing of the oars as he made his getaway. And Betty couldn't help it. She began to laugh in relief, which only made Pike row faster. She cackled until her sides ached, an eerie echoing noise that sounded strange even to her. She only stopped when Pike's thrashing oars could no longer be heard. When it was clear they were alone on the water, Fingerty spoke. You're going to t tell me what you want from me now? Yes, Betty replied. It's simple. You know these marshes better than us. You're more useful than any map, so we want you to get us through this fog and take us to Windy Bottom. Fingerty looked aghast. You know what happens to people who help prisoners escape? Prison, banishment, and if they've done it before, like me, their necks get stretched. Only if they're caught, said Betty. She almost laughed bitterly, for what did prison or banishment matter to her? She wouldn't be alive long enough to suffer. No one ever plans on getting caught, Fingerty muttered. That's usually when they become unstuck. All you have to do is get us there, said Betty. After that, you can forget you ever saw us, unless... She paused, thinking... Perhaps there were other ways Fingerty could be useful if he could be persuaded. Unless you want to go back a hero. What was it Pike had said? With a good catch. There was a moment of silence. Then Fingerty asked, How? By bringing Jared back with you. Fingerty laughed a long, wheezing laugh. You think that's possible? The man's an ogre from what I've heard just as possible as being invisible. Fingerty watched her, his expression a mix of curiosity and wariness. His eyes shifted to the dolls. Your granny'll have someone to say about all this. Yes, Betty agreed. I expect she will. She glanced at Colton, who had remained silent since the warder's departure. She wondered if he was angry or worried or both. Let's get moving. Colton handed Fingerty an oar. Don't try anything, old man, he warned. Fingerty took the oar, scowling. So not only are you kidnapping me, you expect me to do the donkey work. Think of it as a favour, 
said Betty, like the ones you used to do for people on torment. Favors? Weren't favors. Got paid for those and handsomely too. Gah! He struck the oar into the water bad-temperedly. The boat moved off and Betty settled on the rags. At least they were heading towards her sisters now, tackling part of her problem. The other part reared in her mind again. Widdershins, etched into the tower wall. Had someone wronged Saoirse? Could the curse have stemmed from jealousy or even lies? What happened next? she asked, shivering. The tips of her ears and nose stung from the freezing fog. To Saoirse Spellthorn. Fingerty's eyes narrowed to slits. And now she wants a history lesson, he said shrilly. You've got cheek, girl, you know that. Shouldn't even say that name out here on the marshes. I need to know. Betty's voice was firm. That what all this is about, Fingerty said hoarsely. Seems like you know plenty about Sorsha Spellthorn already without my help. What do you mean? I wouldn't be asking if I did. Ha! Fingerty lowered his oar, jabbing at Betty with a crooked finger. You don't fool me, girlie. Seen it with me own eyes, so I have. What's he babbling about? Colton asked. The dolls! Fingerty spluttered. What else? You must know they were hers. Betty stared back at him, then down at the nesting dolls cradled in her hand. Finally, she understood what the old man meant and the significance of the tale he had told her in the poacher's pocket. A tale in which smugglers and a spy had sacrificed their lives for a newborn child and in which Saoirse had used mysterious powers to observe people in an impossible way and hid herself and her sister from danger, spying, hiding, whipping from one place to another in seconds, they belong to her, Betty whispered, stunned. The Widdershins' heirlooms, as well as their terrible legacy, they had all come from her. All these years passed down through my family. Saoirse's powers survived. She grabbed Fingerty's bony knee and shook it urgently. Please, Fingerty, you have to tell me now everything you know about Saoirse Spellthorn. My life and my sister's lives depend on it. How did Saoirse end up in Crowstone Tower? Fingerty yanked on his oar, propelling the boat through the water. She trusted the wrong person. Chapter 19 Saoirse's Tale The prison bell echoed in Saoirse's head from across the marshes, it had been going all morning, and the island was rife with gossip. Within hours, warders had arrived, scanning the beaches, knocking on doors. The prisoner, a con man, was young, they said. Strong, but not enough to swim the currents and survive. Yet no body had been found. After they'd left, Saoirse had gone down to one of Torment's sandy coves. There were often cockles and mussels to be found in the rock pools, along with other treasures from the deep. Once she had found a pearl which she had given to Prue on her sixteenth birthday a few weeks ago. She heard him before she saw him. The long, pained groan rolled out over the mudflats. 
Sorsha shielded her eyes from the sun, expecting to see a sea lion. When the groan came again, it was followed by movement, and Sorsha discovered that what she had taken for a mud-covered rock up ahead was a near-lifeless body. Checking she was alone, she picked her way across the shingle and knelt by him. To her surprise, he was not much older than her, and she wondered how he could have done the things they said in such a short life. Any concerns for her safety were dismissed. The young man was weak as a kitten. He gazed up at her with sand-crusted but beautiful grey eyes. The dried mud around his mouth cracked as he spoke. Help me, please. She could have left him or called for the warders, but pity tugged at her heart. Any life left in him would surely be snuffed out if he was thrown into a damp cell. Gently, she used her skirt hem to wipe the mud from his face. It was the way he looked at her then, with such gratitude and trust which won her over. No one here had ever looked at her that way. She'd known then that she would help him, hiding him away in a secluded cave. His name was Winter Bates. He grew stronger with each passing day and every meal she smuggled to him, sharing his past with her as well as his hopes for the future. Sorsha had never known anyone who made her laugh the way he did, for Ma and Prue never joked, and smiles were wry or did not reach the eyes. And though she told herself not to, she couldn't help but be drawn to him and imagining a future where they would not have to say goodbye. As winter gained strength, so did Sorsha's feelings. So, too, did the danger. There had been whispers on torment all week, but Sorsha was used to that. At first she'd dismissed the stares and the conversations that stopped as soon as she entered a shop or the chapel or passed an open door on the street. During her 18 years on the island, there had always been some fly in the ointment, some gossip or rumour involving her doing the rounds. It always blew over eventually, if she ignored it long enough. This time, though... Something felt off, different. But then she reminded herself things were different. She had taken a huge risk, one that put her life and those of her family's at stake. Her underarms prickled with sweat in the muggy early evening. She swiped her fingers across her upper lip, blotting away the moisture there. It was nearing the end of August and the long dry summer showed no signs of letting up. She hurried down the lane to the ramshackle cottage that she, her mother and Prue called home. Dozy bees bumbled around the lavender, exhausted by the heat. When she reached the cottage, she saw every window was thrown wide open along with the door. Her mother was outside, peeling potatoes over a basin of muddy water. Late this evening, she remarked, again. It's this heat. Sorsha said, barely pausing as she passed her mother and went into the dark, stuffy cottage. Inside, a wall of hot air hit her. She placed her basket of reeds on the table and returned outside, wiping a fresh layer of sweat from her forehead. Taint the heat. The warning in her mother's voice cooled the air a little. She spoke quietly. I know where you've been, my girl. Silently, Sorsha sat on the ground by the door. A plume of dust rose as she flopped down. Next to her, a young ginger cat snoozed in the grass. 
Her mother had given up her efforts to shoo it away after it appeared a week ago, flea-bitten and yowling an announcement that this was its new home. Saucer extended a fingertip to stroke the tip of its tail. Shouldn't welcome things in when you don't know where they've come from. A potato plopped into the water, sending brown droplets onto the cat's coat. It didn't flinch. Could say the same for us, Saucer said. The resentment in her voice failed to reach its usual level, smothered by the heat. Although no one ever really welcomed us here, did they? They tolerate us. We should be grateful enough for that. Why? It was a question Saucia had asked many times. Why should we be grateful? Why can't we just leave and go somewhere where no one knows us and no one blames us? How would that look? Her mother snapped, leaving the community that took us in. Barely, Saucia muttered. The community that sacrificed three of its own for strangers, for us. Don't we know it? Saucia slapped the dirt, sending another dust cloud up in the air. The cat sneezed. Aren't you tired of feeling guilty, Ma, of never being allowed to forget? There was a whole world out there. Why did Ma insist on keeping theirs so sheltered? You get used to it. Her mother's voice was brisk. It's a small price to pay in return for our lives. They can't forget, so neither should we. But that's just it, Ma. Saucia said sadly. Our being here on torment keeps all that bad feeling fresh. We may as well be locked up and repent. Like I say, small price to pay. Her mother scraped at another potato. Besides, I don't know if we're even allowed to leave. No one else can. That's the whole point of this place. They're here because they were banished, Saucia protested. We aren't. Doesn't matter. We live like everyone else here not picking and choosing the parts which suit us. Her mother's hair gleamed copper in the sunlight, glowing around her head like a sunflower. Though Saucia's was the same shade, she'd inherited none of its frizziness. Her own hair hung like fine silk, the type of hair that would never take on a curl. People are talking, Ma added. Don't they always... Her mother looked at her sharply, lowering her voice. You give them good reason. Her fingernails were brown with grit as she scraped, 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 and with each scrape of the knife, Saucia felt like she herself were under its blade, being stripped back and exposed. Some things aren't so easy to hide, or to blame on lies or superstition. Hiding a person isn't the same as, I didn't choose to be able to do these things. No, but you choose to do them. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. I'm not hurting anyone, Saucia whispered. Her eyes filled with tears. She wiped at them stubbornly. I just wanted to help. I know that. Her mother dropped the knife and turned to her, cupping her chin with damp, earth-scented fingers. But that's not how the others will see it. They know the man survived the escape. The marshes would have given him up by now. They know he's being hidden. There's been warders on the island again today, searching. If you're caught, they'll take you to repent and you'll be locked up in that cursed place. And, and... She trailed off, releasing Saucia's face to dab at her own. Nearby, a bird chirruped in the hazy silence as she composed herself. They couldn't lock me up in there, 
Saucia said. They could try, but I'd get out somehow. Hide until their backs were turned. Not if they locked you in the tower, her mother whispered. That's where they'd put you. It's where they always put anyone suspected of sorcery. Something in her mother's voice turned Saucia's stomach. Why? Because it can't be done in the tower. You remember, don't you? The stories of how it was built, what it was made from. Saucia frowned. The cairns. Her mother nodded. Resting places should never be disturbed, but that's what they did to those poor souls. Robbed their graves of the stones, the only markers they had. That tower is steeped in death. It's why magic can't be done there. You know the penalty for treason, don't you? Saucia nodded. Everybody knew it. The penalty was death. You think we have it so bad here? Her mother said in a hushed tone. Because you've never known any different or any worse. Let me tell you, there is. Where had you escaped from, Ma, when they rescued you on the marshes? You've never told anyone, not even me. Somewhere I never want to go again. A place where women folk and girls have no voice, no power, no names even. So that place no longer has a name to me. But most people here don't have names either, Saucia said, puzzled. This was one of the things about torment that bothered her most. Many of the islanders were known only by family names. Aside from children born there, Saucia and her family were the only people with first names. True, but the difference here is that it's punishment for past wrongs, said her mother, and for everyone, menfolk and womenfolk. I know you're grateful we were taken in, but we could go anywhere. Saucia paused, searching her mother's face, but the closed expression she knew so well was already forming. Unless... It's because you think no one would look for you here, isn't it? She said, finally understanding. It's the perfect place to hide, an island for sinners and banished folk. No one chooses this. Her mother stabbed at a potato with a knife, not meeting Saucia's eyes. There are worse places to be. Maybe, Saucia said sadly. Yet she knew there were better too. Places their past could not haunt them and where folk would treat them as if they were ordinary. Like how Winter treated her. I wouldn't know though. Somewhere in the hedgerow nearby, a dry twig cracked under the weight of a foot. Saucia snapped to attention, her brown eyes searching the thicket for rabbits or a fox. Instead, her gaze met with the palest of eyes, rimmed with sparse, fair eyelashes. There was a faint rustle, then the eyes vanished from view. Crackles of brittle grass under retreating feet followed. Saucia was about to call out, but stopped as she heard her mother make a sound of exasperation. That was her sister, wasn't it? Her voice was cool in the warm evening. Prudence, come out. There is work to be done. Don't be too hard on her, Ma. Saucia's eyes darted over the hedgerow, but her sister showed no signs of emerging. The tone of her mother's voice was unmistakable whenever she addressed Prue. It was frequently clipped and always sharper than it was when she was speaking to Saucia. Though Saucia always tried to pretend for Prue's sake, it was clear which daughter was favoured. 
I sent her to check the snares over an hour ago. Her mother lifted the basin and carried it inside the cottage. Sorsha followed her in, her skin immediately clammy in the airless space. We'll have no supper if she doesn't hurry. Only the crows know how she wastes so much time slithering around in the hedgerows doing nothing. Ma, Sorsha scolded. She'll hear you. Please be kinder. Her mother shrugged, tipping the potatoes into a pot of fresh water. She's difficult, always has been. No more than me, surely. Her mother paused. Sorsha waited for a denial or cross words, but none came. She's jealous, her mother said at last. She wants what you have. Sometimes she has a certain look in her eyes. A mother always knows. That's not fair, Ma. Sorsha sighed. It was no secret that Prue wished she could do the things Sorsha could. She had said so to Sorsha many times. But was that wrong? She stared out of the window. A trapped fly bobbed against the inside pane. Her mother's comments were nothing she hadn't heard before. Prue was more awkward than Sorsha, larger, clumsier, slower. It was always Prue who'd fall into nettles or have a coughing fit during mass or break dishes when washing them. She ate twice as much as Sorsha and needed things explaining more when their mother was short on time and of temper. Despite all this, Prue always tried hard, always wanting to please. How could Sorsha feel badly towards her when her sister was her only friend? Call her in. Her mother clapped the heavy iron lid on the pot, else she'd be lurking out there all evening. Sorsha ducked outside, grateful to escape the stifling heat. A thorn snagged at her hair from the roses climbing over the doorway. Later, she would think about this and wonder if it had been a warning, some tiny earth spirit trying to prevent her from going out. She had not gone far down the lane when she heard light footsteps echoing her own. She spun round and found herself almost nose to nose with Prue, her pale eyes exactly level with her own. Jumping jackdaws! She hissed, her heart racing. Must you sneak up on me like that? Prue grinned, displaying gappy teeth that had a greyish tinge to them. Sorsha's neck itched with nervous sweat as her sister fell into step beside her. How near had she been to the cottage and the conversation between Sorsha and her mother? Again, she wished Ma would be more forgiving of Prue. It couldn't be easy living in Sorsha's shadow, of both her abilities and her place as Ma's favourite. And though there might be a resentful glance every now and then, who could blame her? You check the snares yet? Nothing in them. Prue stuck her hands in the pocket of her pinny, whistling through her teeth. Didn't want to go back empty-handed, so thought I'd wait and check again. Doesn't take much to make Ma cross. It's the heat, Sorsha muttered. She was always making some excuse for Ma's sharp tongue. Too hot, too cold, too tired, too hungry. Prue stared at her for a moment too long. Of course, she said at last. Poor Ma. I'll come with you, Sorsha suggested. There might be a breeze by the overlook. They covered the short distance in a few minutes, making small talk about the heat, but a sense of unease was growing, hanging over Sorsha like a storm cloud. 
When they reached the cliff's edge, the sensation left her momentarily as a gust of wind swept up off the marshes, cooling the sweat on her forehead. She stared into the distance at the hazy smudge of mainland crowstone. In the daylight, there was nothing much to see, for it was too far away. At night, however, the lights were beautiful. As always, her gaze was drawn closer to lament. It was also too far to see much in detail, the chapel or cairns, but she could make out the caves in the cliff face. The three widows were set back past the crescent of deadly rocks jutting from the mud. Devil's teeth look hungry, Prue commented. Saucer nodded. The rocks were more pronounced today. The tide was out, exposing the teeth in all their horror. No water to blur their edges or dull their sharpness. It was impossible for Saucer to look at them without imagining a night nearly two decades ago when it had been her mother on the water, moments away from being dashed to sea foam on the rocks. Saved at the cost of three strangers' lives. Strangers who lived on within her. They're saying things, you know. People don't see me in the long grass. I've heard whispers. The hairs on Saucer's arms lifted, despite the warmth of the evening. She hadn't admitted her secret about winter to Prue or to Ma, although Ma had guessed. Her mother always knows. Tell me then, she said, distracted, what's being said? All she wanted was to take a long, cool swim and think about winter, and later slip into the dark caves to be with him. Prue flicked a pebble off the edge of the cliff with her toe. They're saying they think the escaped prisoner is still here, on torment, that the water's been too low for him to have got away, so he must be hiding somewhere. I'm sure they'd have found him by now if that were true. There was an edge of irritation to Saucer's voice. Curse this heat and these gossips. She'd already had this from Ma. They must have searched every corner of the island, surely. Despite her calm words, Saucer was unable to control the fluttering within her chest. It was true that no one, apart from her mother, and not for some time now, had ever managed to find something Saucer had hidden, yet despite her confidence in her ability, she was not arrogant enough to feel completely safe. Not if someone was helping him. Prue kneeled and plucked a dry blade of grass. Oh, they've searched. But there are always hidey holes, aren't there? And everyone knows you're good at hiding things. She stuck the grass between her teeth, chewing. All those times we played as children, you never gave up your secret places. She elbowed her playfully. Not even to me. Saucer smiled uncomfortably. Why did Prue always have to push and wheedle to invade every corner of her mind? Even before winter, there had been things Saucia had never wanted to share, but Prue didn't seem to understand that. And you know, her sister continued, if there are places that only you know of, you really should tell the warders. If the warders are too stupid to be able to find hiding places used by children, then they don't deserve any help. Saucia kept her eyes on the low, swampy water, afraid that the truth might be seen in them, but already she knew it was being unpicked like a piece of stitching. We both know there's more to it than that. 
The fluttering in Sorsha's chest became bigger, harder, like a moth changing into a bird. Yes, but no one else aside from you and Ma knows for sure. They might suspect, but they've never had proof of the things I can do. Her pale eyes looked troubled. You still need to be careful. She paused, looking over her shoulder around them. It's true, isn't it? You're hiding the prisoner. Of course not. The lie stuck in Sorsha's throat like dry dust. Only I overheard two warders talking up by the well about an hour ago. I'd sneaked there to get some water to drink. I stayed hidden in the hedge. I wasn't paying much attention till I heard your name. Someone saw you with a stranger by the caves yesterday evening. Sorsha closed her eyes. So she had been seen. Ma's warnings of the tower loomed frighteningly close, but the pull of winter was strong, like a tide she couldn't control. Stop asking questions, Prue, she said in a tight voice. It's best you don't know the answers. If there's trouble ahead, then I want you and Ma having no part of it. Oh, Sorsha, Prue whispered. What have you got mixed up in? She placed a clammy hand on Sorsha's arm, but instinctively Sorsha moved away. She was too worried and irritable to be touched or coddled, or to notice the hurt on Prue's face. Wait, you said I was seen by the caves. Prue blinked, her expression blank. No one would have seen me by the caves. Sorsha watched her sister carefully. I was hidden then. Cove, not caves, Prue said quickly. She moved off, away from the cliff's edge. Sorsha followed as Prue wound through the scrubby grass towards the snares. The feeling of unease was back again. Prue, she said sharply as her sister halted before a snare. Have you been watching me? Prue hunched over the trap. Don't be angry, she whispered. I, I was watching you. And the boy, and then I saw you both vanish, so I kept watching. And then I saw the footprints appearing in the sand by the caves, and I guessed where you were taking him. Sorsha's stomach roiled. Did anyone else see? N no. Good. Sorsha's heart was racing now. She watched as her sister's small, pale hands released the snare and removed a dead rabbit. Its eyes were dull and limbs stiff. She frowned, unsettled further. I thought you said the snares were empty when you checked them. That rabbit's been dead longer than an hour. Oh, said Prue, I must have forgotten this one. Sorsha averted her eyes. It was disturbing how at ease her sister always was when it came to handling dead things. Let's get back. Ma's waiting. I didn't mean to pry. Prue said in a small voice. I just saw you with someone and wondered who it was, that's all. It's all right. Sorsha took a long, deep breath, trying to gather her wits. I need to be careful. Yet someone had seen her, someone other than Prue. What if they'd noticed two sets of footprints from unseen people appearing by the caves? Could she continue to risk her own life for winters? If what Ma said was true, her powers wouldn't save her if she was thrown in the tower, and everyone knew that once in there, madness or execution were the only ways out.
Saucia turned away from the cliff's edge. Let's go, she repeated. When she arrived, her mother yanked her through the door, almost slamming it on Prue. Warders have been here, she hissed, asking where you were yesterday evening. I lied, told them you were here, but if they find out... They won't. Saucia's legs buckled under her, and she sat weakly in a chair at the table. I'll be more careful. You'll stop now, said Ma, as sharply as if she were addressing Prue. Let him fend for himself, because if you're caught helping him, all three of us are doomed. Saucia said nothing as Prue began skinning the rabbit. Already she knew she wouldn't manage a bite. The rabbit's lifeless eyes seemed fixed on her. She looked away. I'll go to him one last time. Saucia, her mother gasped. To tell him I can't help any more, Saucia finished. I have to do that at least. You can't start a thing and not finish it. She glanced at her mother desperately. Unless we help him and leave too. It was the wrong suggestion. Her mother's eyes flared. You'll be no help to anyone if they throw you in that tower. If they have their eyes on you already, they're probably setting a trap as we speak. Not only are you hiding an escaped convict, but you're using magic to aid you. They stared at each other, breaths coming in shaky bursts. This was the first time either of them had used the word magic for Saucia's abilities. How strange it was to name it after all this time, this thing that had always been a part of her, like teeth or breathing. You'll be helpless in the tower, her mother hissed. Your powers won't work within those walls of death. Perhaps, perhaps they wouldn't need to. Saucia said slowly. The word magic shuffled around her head, made bolder, stronger by its new name. She could hide things, couldn't she? If I'm not the one who's using them, perhaps I could buy some time to save myself even if they throw me in the tower. Prue paused in her grim task, open-mouthed. Something stringy dangled from her hand. Her mother stared at her. What do you mean? I mean, what if my powers could be transferred, hidden? Saucia scanned the cottage shelves. Hiding things is what I do. What if my powers were hidden within ordinary objects so they could be used by someone else to help me? Her eyes came to rest on a set of nesting dolls, one of the only things her mother had brought with her from her mysterious life before torment. As a child, Saucia had always been fascinated by the dolls hidden within a doll, like secret little doorways into another world. I wonder... It's perfect, Prue breathed. She tucked a strand of hair behind her ear, smearing her cheek with rabbit blood. No one would think. It's just an idea, Saucia said. In case the worst should happen... They wouldn't have to be used unless they were really needed. It's the best way to protect myself. The best way would be to stop dabbling with danger, said her mother. If you walk away now, no trouble will find you. What if people had walked away from us, Ma? Saucia asked. That night on the marshes 18 years ago. We deserved a chance, didn't we? Do you really think you could transfer your powers? Prue interrupted, still staring at Saucia. 
Her eyes were pale orbs, caught by a ray of the setting sun. It fired them up like cat's eyes in the dark. How sure are you? Saoirse hesitated. She had never questioned whether she was able to do any of the things she could, only known that she was able to, somehow. It was like trying to remember a time before she knew she could walk. She had to have learnt it, and yet she couldn't imagine not knowing how to do it. I can do it, she said, so if anything does go wrong, I need to know one of you will get me out. I will, said Prue at once. No one's ever accused me of working magic. No one will suspect. Was she too bright, too eager? Saoirse wondered, then scolded herself. It wouldn't do to think like Ma. Prue had always longed to experience Saoirse's powers for herself. It was nothing to feel uneasy about. The rabbit dripped softly in Prue's hand. Drip, drip onto the table. Ma's words floated back. Jealous. Wants what you have. A mother always knows. She pushed the words away, hid them in a little corner of her mind. She could count on Prue, she was sure of it. In any case, she didn't have much choice. Besides, a little envy between sisters didn't mean anything, did it? Chapter 20 the Crow's Chorus. Psst! Petty! Fingerty gurgled with fright as a voice cut across his own, interrupting his tale. Betty, who had huddled down in the sacking to listen to him, sat up, dazed at the sound of it. She had been so wrapped up in the story that the cold, damp fog in the present almost came as a surprise after the long, hot summer of Saoirse and Prue's. There, between the marsh mists, Fliss's face hovered like an apparition above the boat. Joy and relief coursed through Betty like a wave. How wonderful and weird it was to see her sister's face in this way again. Fliss! She reached out to the image of her sister's face, not quite touching it, but Fliss's eyes were searching the boat in earnest. Betty, where are you? she whispered. I'm here! Betty said, then realised Fliss was unable to see her. Oh, wait, the dolls. Fingerty clutched his oar to him like it was a shield. Blinking, he recovered himself and peered closer at Fliss. Colton had stopped rowing and was gazing at the hovering ghost-like face with curiosity and possibly a degree of fear. During Fingerty's tale, he had listened as enraptured as Betty. Does Fliss have something too? Like the bag and the dolls? Betty nodded. A mirror. Hastily, she twisted the outermost doll so that the two halves of painted key no longer met. Instantly, Fliss focused on her and Betty knew they had reappeared. Fingerty? Fliss gasped. What's he doing with you? He was with the warders looking for the prisoners. Colton and I... Oh, I don't have time to explain now, but we had to kidnap him. Betty gripped the edge of the boat, hope and fear soaring in her heart as questions tumbled out of her. Where's Charlie? Are you safe? Did you escape Jared? Fliss shook her head. Charlie's safe. We haven't escaped. Jared's asleep with the bag and he's brought us to this creepy old mill. It's deserted, all boarded up. The only way out is the door and he's blocked it, so we're trapped. 
Wait, Charlie's here. Fliss's face vanished momentarily and was replaced by Charlie's. Charlie. A lump lodged in Betty's throat at the sight of her little sister. She so badly wanted to hold her, to feel her sister's hot, sticky little hand in her own again. There was no way to tell if that could happen now. The curse had begun to bring them closer than they'd ever been before ripping them apart. Are you all right? Charlie nodded, a tangle of hair bobbing over her forehead. Her cheeks were grubby and tear-stained. I'm awful hungry now, and there's birds squawking in my head. I want it to stop. Oh, Charlie, Betty said again, her eyes filled with desperate tears. It had begun, the crow's calls counting down the hours until sunset. I can hear them too, Fliss said quietly, reappearing in Charlie's place. The crows, it's awful. I can barely hear myself think. Hearing crows, Colton asked, perturbed. That's part of the curse. Fliss nodded, her eyes brimming with tears. Are you in Windy Bottom? Betty asked urgently. Is that where this mill is? I think so. I, I don't know how long he's planning on staying, but he's mentioned getting supplies and working out a plan before we move on. Perhaps once you've made it back to Granny, you can send help, but even if we escape Jared, we're no closer to breaking the curse. Fliss paused, frowning. Wait, why is Colton in the boat with you if you're heading back to Crowstone? Betty gulped. About that, I... Betty... Fliss repeated sharply, answer me, why is Colton? She emitted a sudden gasp as Betty shook her head guiltily. I never said I was going back, Fliss, not without you and Charlie. But the curse, Fliss croaked, you can't do this, you mustn't. I'm not going back alone, Betty repeated. Don't be a fool, Fliss begged, turn around. You must still be within Crowstone's borders. Save yourself before it's too late. I'm coming to find you, whether you like it or not. Tears dripped down Fliss's cheeks. Betty glanced at the water, half expecting them to land there, but they vanished the moment they left her sister's skin. I could shake you, Betty Widdershins. Let's hope you get the chance, Betty whispered. But at that moment, Fliss's eyes took on a panicked look. I have to go. Jared's stirring. I think he's waking up. Fliss! Betty reached out just as her sister's face vanished. Charlie? Her fingers found only swirling curls of mist, like her sister's were already phantoms. No, she couldn't think like that. They were alive, unharmed, for now. She felt Colton's and Fingerty's eyes on her and buried her face in her hands. It's not too late for you, Colton said. His eyes were haunted. I could take you back, search for Charlie and Fliss myself. You're not out of Crowstone yet. No. Her voice was muffled. Less than an hour ago, Colton had been her sworn enemy. Now, even with their fragile truce, she didn't want him or Fingerty feeling sorry for her. For them to help her, they had to believe she was strong. You want to listen, girl, Fingerty said. His gravelly voice was softer than usual, like some of his hardness had chipped away from seeing Charlie and Fliss. Won't do your sisters no good chasing after them, not if it means getting yourself killed. He blinked suddenly, 
eyes reddening. And poor old Bunny, she can't lose you all. I said no, I'm going. Her sisters weren't lost. She couldn't let herself think that, not yet. She held out her hand to Colton. Give me the oar. I need to do something. I can't just sit here. Colton shook his head. You should rest. Row faster, then, Betty snapped. She turned to Fingerty, who was squinting into the mist, looking troubled. And I need to hear the rest of Saucia's story. But Fingerty lifted a gnarled finger to point silently into the fog. Betty and Colton stared. A tiny flickering light was hovering above the water close to the boat, glowing like a ghostly orb. Betty had never seen a wisp so closely before. It had a mesmerising quality, and she could suddenly believe all the stories about them as wraiths luring travellers to danger. Spooked, she blinked, remembering Fingerty's superstitious talk to the warder. Strange things have happened on this water. Terrible things. He glanced at her and made the sign of the crow. I'll not say another word about all that until we're on dry land. With that, his lips clamped shut like a muscle, and he grabbed an oar from Colton. Together, they rowed in silence, each as eager as the other to get away from the mysterious wisp. Betty settled into the pit of the boat, dragging her gaze from the wisp. After fumbling with the dolls to hide the three of them from sight once more, she turned her face into the musty sacking and wept silently, trying to make sense of all she knew about Saoirse and the curse. Thoughts and images muddled in her head, fishy eyes, magical dolls and musty carpet bags. Widdershins scratched into stone. She felt strongly that Prue was the person Saoirse shouldn't have trusted, but without the rest of the tale, she couldn't be sure. Answers were there somewhere. She just couldn't make them fit. Though she wouldn't have thought it possible, exhaustion and the lull of the waves tugged her into sleep. She dreamed of her sisters and picking merry pennies in the meadows beyond Nesty Nook Green. She woke with damp eyes to the shriek of birds and bleak dawn light and jolted up from the bottom of the boat. Ahead lay a bay of golden sand shaped in a perfect crescent. Beyond it, the land was lush and green, and despite the sky being overcast, Betty was surprised to see that the water was blue and clear, so clear she could see tiny fish swimming alongside them. Somewhere near, too near, a crow rasped, soon joined by a second. The last traces of sleep left her as she scanned the skies. No crows, only scavenging gulls. It was happening just like Granny had said. It starts with birdsong, the crow's chorus. No matter how hard you look, you'll never see them. The sound exists only in your head. Panic rose in her throat, and she clapped her hands over her ears. The crows in her head croaked louder. The sound itself was horrible, like the inside of her skull was being scratched and pecked at, but what it meant set her limbs shaking with terror. Stop, she whispered, please stop. But there was no stopping it, no going back. The curse had been set in motion. Even if a tiny, deep part of her had clung to the possibility that it couldn't be real, there was no denying it now. 
and as surely as the sun would set, it would also mark the last day of the Widdishin sisters unless they uncovered the secret to breaking the curse. Colton touched her arm lightly. She looked up, her eyes wild. Fingerty hung back, squinting and twitching like he had wind. It started, she whispered. I could hear the crows. She pulled herself onto the seat. Every bone in her ached. Where are we? She croaked. Horseshoe Bay, Fingerty answered. He was huddled at the other end of the seat like a gnarled old tree stump. Had to come further round the marshland as Marshfoot'll be swarming with warders. Betty's gaze swept over the beach. Here the sand was like coarse golden sugar, not the dull, ugly shingle she was used to. She had always thought she'd be happy for such a sight, but instead she felt cheated. Without her sisters and granny to share it, the bay's beauty was bittersweet. She had risked everything to be here, and yet now she was about to step onto dry land that wasn't crowstone for the first time in her life. Her hopes were smaller than they'd ever been. She tried to tell herself that it was still possible, that they had come this far, but the crows in her head were doing their best to drown out the practical little voice she always tried to listen to. Colton leapt out as the boat ran ashore. Betty wavered on the edge, momentarily queasy. Colton offered his hand to her, not quite meeting her eye. She hesitated, then took it, allowing him to help her out. They might not be friends, but there was no point in her being proud. After, he went to help Fingerty, but the old man slapped his hand away, still sore from having a fish hook held to his throat. I can manage. Suit yourself, Colton replied. Need no help from a peckin' crook, Fingerty continued as he climbed awkwardly over the side of the boat. Takes one for no one, Colton muttered. Fingerty's fleshy nose reddened, but he said nothing. Together, they hauled the boat up over the sand. Over there, Colton pointed. We can leave her behind those rocks. There's plenty of seaweed to cover her up with. You could make a wish here for your sisters, Fingerty said unexpectedly. Folks say wishes made in this bay be sure to come true. He frowned, the roughness leaving his voice as he watched Betty. You look like you could use a bit of luck. Betty looked back over the shimmering water and remembered father's cousin, Clarissa. She had travelled here all those years ago, wishing for the curse to be broken, but it hadn't worked. Perhaps the curse was too powerful, or perhaps with the crows overpowering Clarissa's thoughts, she hadn't wished for the right thing. Betty closed her eyes, trying to blot out the sound of the birds and focus. The logical side of her knew that wishing alone couldn't give her what she wanted, but right now she'd take all the help she could get. If she was going to die, she would at least try everything in her power to change things first. I wish for the knowledge that I need to break the curse, Betty whispered. Her words were whipped away on the wind before they had barely left her mouth. She blinked, shaking a frizzle of hair out of her eyes, and searched for a path away from the cove. They trudged up it in silence, the sound of their invisible footsteps on gravel and sand confusing the gulls who were circling and pecking. 
Betty welcomed the noise, though it was still not enough to mask the crow's rasping. If I live past today, I never want to hear another crow again, she muttered. Fingerty's eyes darted from side to side. Crows, curses, cuckoo, all this, he said, shuffling further into his coat. It was then Betty stopped abruptly. Something heavy in her skirt was bumping against her knee as she walked. From her pocket, she withdrew a flat, rough, grey stone, like those which Crowstone Tower was built from. Her fingers trembled. She flung it away into the scrub, but not before Colton saw. What was that? A stone from the tower, she said quietly. Whenever the curse is triggered, one falls from the walls. Colton gave a low whistle, shaking his head. This is some curse. Betty nodded wordlessly and set off again. She had only taken a few paces when the weight in her pocket returned, along with the dull thud against her leg. The stone was back. She continued, not bothering to remove it again. It echoed the heaviness of her heart. Did you really think you'd be any different? It gloated. She curled her fingers around it, its weight a cruel reminder of all the other Widdershins girls before her. Let it be, she thought. It stood for all she was fighting for, too. The sandy path gave way to cobbles. They found themselves on the outskirts of a town that was just rousing itself from sleep as the sun rose, starting to break through the cloud. From a baker's cart, Colton stole three buns and an urn of milk. Too hungry to feel guilty, Betty wolfed down the still warm bread. Even Fingerty ate gratefully without a single snippy comment about crooks and was far better tempered for it. Betty tapped her foot impatiently. The sun had risen, but instead of warming her, she felt chilled. She wondered if she would see it mark this point in the sky again after today. Can you hurry? We need to get moving. Give us a chance, Fingerty spluttered, cuffing milk from his chin. I need you to make some inquiries. Find out how far away Windy Bottom is. It's too risky for Colton or me to ask. Fingerty hiccuped. Best undo this spell, then, unless you want folk scared thinking they're talking to spirits. Betty rolled her eyes. She hadn't foreseen that she would be quite such a bossy leader, but in her imagined escapades, the stakes had been about adventure. This was about survival. Obviously, but Colton goes with you, unseen, and so does the fishhook. Fingerty scowled. Hmm. They found a narrow stone bridge and ducked into the shadows underneath. It was deserted but for a beggar woman selling matches, intent on counting her meagre takings. Here, said Betty. She took the nesting dolls out from the folds of her clothes. After twisting the top of the outer doll counterclockwise, she removed it, taking care not to dislodge Colton's scrap of cloth or her own piece of bitten thumbnail that kept them invisible. She took out Fingerty's button, then sealed the dolls carefully once more, lining up the keys. Fingerty blinked as he became visible, looking this way and that now that he was no longer able to see Betty or Colton. Then he tensed as Colton leaned over to say something in his ear. Still here, old man. He nudged Fingerty in the ribs. They began to walk, passing the beggar. 
She called out to Fingerty, but he did not answer, and her face fell. Betty watched her pityingly. Some people did not need magic to be invisible. She was pacing impatiently, kicking up a small tornado of dried leaves at her feet, much to the confusion of the match seller, when Colton and Fingerty returned. Any luck? she asked. Yep. Fingerty cuffed his nose, speaking quickly. Windy Bottom is a couple of miles west. There's a coal wagon over yonder that'll be going through it. If we hurry, we can catch it. Good, said Betty. Finally, it seemed her luck might just be changing. A few minutes later, having sneaked on to the coal wagon, she didn't feel quite so lucky. The three of them were perched uncomfortably upon mounds of coal, which shifted every time the wagon went over a bump. Soon they were covered in coal dust, and it was an effort not to sneeze or cough too loudly as the horrid stuff got into their noses and throats. Betty lay back, closing her eyes, which had started to stream. If she concentrated hard, the wagon's rumbling almost drowned out the incessant cawing of the crows in her head. She lay there, willing Fliss's face to appear before her with the news that she and Charlie had somehow escaped, or were at least still safe, but there was nothing. Betty wondered if the wish she had made in Horseshoe Bay had been as wasted as father's cousin Clarissa's. She glanced at Colton, her thoughts souring further. He hadn't needed a magical bay to make his wish come true. The Widdishans had done that. Whatever he might desire now could only pale in comparison. Her curiosity deepened. What did you wish for? No point, so I didn't bother, Fingerty grunted, unaware that the question hadn't been directed at him. Betty raised an eyebrow. You're the one who said it had come true, he scowled. Yep, well, too late by then, else I'd have wished never to have clapped eyes on either of you. Maybe you should have wished for some manners, Betty said under her breath. Fingerty eyed her suspiciously. Eh? Nothing. She turned to Colton. And you? What was your wish? To escape, he said without hesitation. What do you mean? You already have escaped. No, I just got out of the prison. That's not the same as being truly free. I've escaped Crowstone, but I can't stop looking over my shoulder. Not yet. Maybe not ever. He chuckled softly. You wouldn't understand. I think I do, said Betty, softening towards him a little more. Colton was as haunted by Crowstone as she was. Perhaps neither of them would ever completely shake it off. I know better than anyone that some prisons don't need any walls. And you're still not free, even now. He chuckled sourly. Just like me. Some things... I know I won't ever forget them. The stench, the cold, the cruelty. A place like that, it gets its claws into you and won't let go. Ain't a good place, Fingerty murmured in agreement. Their eyes met, something passing between them. Not quite a truce but the start of an understanding. You said you were innocent, Betty blurted out. Is that true? Suddenly she found herself hoping that it was, that breaking him out had served some noble cause if her own failed. A sullen note crept into Colton's voice. Absolutely. 
Betty stayed quiet, waiting for him to continue. After my father died, my mother became a servant, he said eventually, for a wealthy household. She worked hard for poor pay, though we were at least fed and clothed. But she wanted more for me and saved as much money as she could so that one day I might have enough to start a new life for myself. We were treated like nothings by those we worked for. Oh, they didn't hate us, but it was like... like we weren't really people with hopes and feelings. The only one who was different was the youngest of the house, a little girl. Her name was Mina and she was seven years old. Perhaps it was because, as the youngest, she knew what it felt like to be ignored. She'd often come to us for a kind word or a bit of comfort, always happy to listen to my mother's stories or sneak off to climb trees with me. She taught me how to read. She was a wild little thing, a bit like your Charlie. He smiled faintly at the memory, and Betty was reminded of Colton's concern for her younger sister in the cell when he thought her tooth had been knocked out, and later his distress when Jared had taken Charlie hostage. Colton rubbed his nose. Mina was the only one who cared when my mother became ill and died. He blinked, but Betty could see the glassy sheen his eyes had taken on. It was then I knew I had to leave. I couldn't live that life any more, not when my mother had worked so hard to change things for me. So I took out the money she had saved and packed up what little I had. But when I told them I was leaving, they laughed at me. His lips pursed angrily. Laughed. They told me not to be so stupid, that no one would take me as an apprentice or a scholar and that I'd end up begging on the streets. So I showed them the money. He grimaced. That was a mistake. They wouldn't believe my mother could have saved so much. They never noticed, you see never paid attention to what she went without, just to put by that little bit of her wages every week. Over a while, the money wasn't such a little amount anymore. They accused me of stealing it and locked me in the cellar. He leaned his head back on the rattling wagon, closing his eyes. It was thanks to Mina stealing the key that I escaped. She was the only one who believed me, but of course no one listened to her. When I got out, it was with nothing but the clothes on my back. All my mother's money had been taken from me. But, but that's not fair, Betty said fiercely. Poor Colton, no wonder he'd been so desperate to escape. He had already been through so much before he'd ever set foot in prison. He knew loss, just as she did. Needless to say, I didn't get far, Colton continued. I tried, but having no money meant I couldn't. I was hiding in a cow shed when they caught up with me, and of course by then I had no chance of making anyone listen. Running had only made me look guiltier. He opened his eyes and met Betty's. And so I was thrown in Crowstone Prison, where no one believed me either. I believe you. Betty reached out and touched Colton's hand. And I understand why you lied to us to get out. Doesn't change anything though, does it? I've escaped, but you three girls are paying the price. His voice cracked with remorse. The ache of wanting to cry filled Betty's throat. Colton had a conscience. He wasn't a monster. She couldn't say she forgave him completely, but she was now certain that he had never meant the girls harm and would never have forced them to leave Crowstone. That had been Jared's doing. But the person Betty blamed most of all was herself. 
I'm glad you're out, she said at last. You didn't deserve to be in there. It's a bad enough place for those who are guilty, Fingerty added gruffly. And for some, the nightmare ain't over even when they're let out. The one sent to torment? Betty asked. Yep. Is that why you help people escape? You felt sorry for them, or was it only for money? For a moment, it seemed Fingerty was struggling to answer. Both, he admitted finally. I saw the way people are treated in there. Life on torment ain't much better. People say you were nearly sent there, Betty said. She winced as the wagon went over a bump. Wish I had been, Fingerty growled. Better that than to be a spy for the warders for the rest of my life. No one likes a crooked warder less than another warder, that's a fact. Some of them... There's no sense of justice or fairness. They're there to be cruel because that's what they enjoy. But not all of them. Some care, especially for the prisoners who really could be innocent. Is that why you know so much about Saoirse Spellthorn? Betty asked. Because you thought she was innocent? Fingerty nodded. Her tale fascinated many of the warders. My father, his father, stories got passed down, mostly of her being a witch, because those tales justified locking her up. The story I'm telling is the one they tried to stamp out, the one that's frowned upon. Added to the strangeness of the tower, how it still survives, and of course her leaping to her death, no wonder it's still going strong after all these years. He paused, swaying with the cart. And now you've heard most of it. There's not much else to tell except the final part. Chapter 21 Saoirse's Tale In the end, Saoirse chose the set of wooden nesting dolls that her mother had owned as a child, an old gilt-edged mirror that they had dug up while planting the herb garden, and the travelling bag that had carried her mother's few possessions to torment on the night Saoirse had come into the world. She'd selected the items carefully, both for their qualities and because to anyone else they would appear to hold little value. If the worst should happen and Saoirse was taken, it wouldn't do to have the items stolen, which was why she'd stuck to the most humble things they owned. Not that this was difficult. They possessed nothing that could be considered valuable. Of the three of them, Prue would be the least likely to be accused of anything, for she had been born on torment. The islanders might not be warm towards her, but she was considered more one of their own than Saoirse and her mother, the water witches from the unknown. Later that evening, in the still muggy cottage, she poured all of her concentration and skill into hiding her three abilities in those objects. The hiding into the strange little wooden dolls which concealed each other, the spying into the looking glass, the transporting into the bag. She told herself it would work, willing it, imagining the abilities ebbing out of her while simultaneously using them for the very task in hand. When it was done, she felt empty, vulnerable, ordinary. Ordinary. It was something she'd wanted her entire life, just to fit in and not draw unwanted attention. 
Now she didn't even feel like herself anymore. But it needn't be forever, she told herself, just until it was safe. When will that be? A little voice chimed in her head. She pushed it away. When she returned the items to their places, they no longer felt like the same objects. They felt fragile, breakable, like treasure. But no one knew, she reminded herself, except her and Ma and Prue. Her mother finished stacking the dirty dishes and wiped her hands. Perhaps, she hesitated, perhaps you're right. About what? Sorsha asked. Leaving. Her mother's voice was low, hesitant. But Ma, said Prue, looking up from her sewing, you said disappearing would only make the islanders think they were right about us all along. Let them. Ma's voice trembled. We've never set a foot wrong in the 18 years since we arrived, yet nothing's changed. And it never will, not now. There will always be some finger pointing. We'll never be truly safe. Are you sure? Sorsha stared around the cottage, the only home she had known. She had always longed to leave, but she hadn't wanted it like this. She had wanted it to be an adventure, not an escape. We'll gather our things, her mother said. We should leave as soon as possible. This evening, Sorsha asked, after sunset. Her mother shook her head. Before. It'll be more suspicious if we're seen moving around in darkness. I can move us quickly, Sorsha said. No one will see a thing. We just need to decide where to go. She paused guiltily, staring around their home. And we'll only be able to take whatever we can carry. The rest will have to be left behind. Prue set down her sewing. But where will we go? We don't know anywhere, haven't been anywhere. Sorsha walked to the door, then decide by the time I'm back. I won't be long. Her mother stared at her, exasperated. You can't be serious. You need to save yourself, not take further risks. I can't just leave him, said Sorsha. Now my powers are in those objects. He's not hidden anymore. I need to warn him. That's the least I can do. Sorsha, please, her mother began. Don't be a fool for someone who will probably get caught anyway. That may be so, Sorsha bowed her head. But if he's caught, I don't want it to be because of me. She glanced at the travelling bag, hesitating. Don't. Her mother's voice was firm. It will only take the wrong person to see something. So Sorsha snatched the water pail and hurried out into the balmy evening before her mother could protest further. It was still light, just, and the drone of bees had given way to the hum of gnats. Later, she would remember the scent of wildflowers and sounds of wild creatures rustling in the hedges, and she would wish she had taken time to look around the cottage and kiss her mother. She headed for the well, drawing water from it, then went to the cliff's edge. Before starting down the rocky cliff path, she checked in every direction but saw no one. She descended the steps, welcoming the light breeze off the water. About halfway down, she stopped by an area of rock covered in moss. The little beach below could be seen from here, brown sludgy mud and boulders that had broken off from the cliffs. It was deserted. She glanced back the way she had come. 
the path was clear. She turned to the mossy rock. Part of it jutted out, and in between was a narrow space that wasn't first noticeable from above. It was an easily overlooked spot which Saoirse had discovered when she was small. She'd been following a lame gull, trying to scoop it up to bring it back to the cottage, but the creature had led her a dance on the cliff's edge before vanishing into the gap. Only when Saoirse had followed had she discovered what lay beyond it, a crawl space which burrowed into the cliff like a vole. It was a good hiding place, especially when combined with her power to render someone invisible. If the warders came searching, the echoes of them entering the caves would be heard in plenty of time, enough time to cover tracks and press into some nook of the wall so that grasping hands couldn't discover them. For as she had explained, what couldn't be seen could still be heard and touched. She crawled into the dank space, it smelled fishy and salty, a smell which took her back to her first discovery of this place, and a smell she associated with adventure and secrets. Soon the light filtering through from the entrance vanished, and she was blind, using only her hands to explore familiar bumps and twists to the tunnel. Moss caught under her fingernails and scraped her knees. She remembered the first time she had ventured into the crawl space all those years ago, Back then it had felt like the tunnel went on forever, but in reality it was short, and already she could see a yellow glow ahead where the tunnel opened out into a cavern. She shuffled closer, trying not to breathe the musty air, then paused as she heard a low voice. Saoirse gave a three-note whistle, then waited. There was silence, broken by a scrambling sort of sound, and then the yellow glow vanished, leaving the tunnel pitch black. Though she was in the dark, Saoirse instinctively willed herself to be hidden, then remembered that she was unable to. Her powers were no longer with her, instead hidden within trinkets half a mile away at the cottage. For the first time in as long as she could remember, she was afraid. Something wasn't right. Slowly she backed away, trying not to make a sound. Then came a whistle being returned, the signal that all was well. She hesitated. A voice whispered out of the depths of the cavern. Saoirse, is that you? Her fear and suspicion lessened. Winter? Of course. Who else? She stayed where she was. I just thought, when you didn't answer straight away... And then the lantern went out. Who are you talking to? Myself. I stubbed my toe. He gave a nervous laugh. I worried for a moment that it might not be you, so I shut the lantern out. Is all well? Yes, Saoirse replied. Well, no. She nudged toward the wider part of the cavern. It smelled of smoke and burning oil. She edged further in, blindly feeling for the drop she knew was ahead. There. Her legs dangled over the precipice, feeling air. She wrinkled her nose, sniffing in the blackness. There was something different about the cave tonight, something she couldn't place. Did you bring food? he asked. His voice was flat, not hopeful as it usually was at the thought of getting fed. Perhaps he knew as well as she did that this was the end. Why had she ever let herself hope they had a future... 
After tonight, she'd be left with nothing of him except memories of dark caves and devastation. No, sorry, it was too risky. I came to tell you that I can't help you any more. It's too dangerous, and I can't hide you any more. She broke off, distracted. Uneasiness thickened. It sounds different in here, she blurted as the thought came into her head. Less echoing. Does it? This time, she recognised the difference in his voice. So small that perhaps it was only noticeable in the dark, because her hearing was the only sense she could rely on. Winter, she croaked. Why haven't you lit the lantern again? Oh, I was just about to. She wasn't imagining it, his strained, strange voice. Something was wrong. Suddenly, Sorsha realised that the darkness wasn't her enemy here, it was her friend. She also knew that it was probably too late, but she had to try. She'd said too much, but there was still a chance. They hadn't seen her face. With a cry, she turned, treading air, her fingers scrabbling for the tunnel as the hiss of a match flared behind her. An unfamiliar voice roared, Seize her! Hot fingers wrapped around her ankle. Sorsha gasped, kicking free. There was a thud as her boot struck flesh and a roar erupted below her, filling the cave. From some air pocket, nesting crows shrieked and flapped at the noise. Sorsha had one moment of hope, before her other ankle was grabbed, and this time she was pulled back, grazing her palms. She landed awkwardly, twisting her leg under her, skirt tangling. She blinked away tears of pain and terror as the cave swam into focus. No wonder their voices hadn't echoed. The cavern was much fuller tonight. Full with eight people crammed in, six of them warders. Someone had seen her, given her away. Prue? Could they have made her talk somehow? The thought stung like a slap and she hated herself for it. Moments ago she had been sure her heart was breaking, but now it was crashing in her chest like the waves against rocks, clinging to survival. She looked at the warders, fat, thin, old, young, stern, mean. Their differences meant nothing. They were all in the same uniform, all here for the same reason, her and him. Winter stood motionless, shackled between two warders. There were no signs he had put up a fight. His eyes met hers, and they were dull and blank, empty of hope. That's her, he said tonelessly. The one who brought me here and hid me. We know that, a warder sneered. We all heard what she said. He leaned in to Sorsha's face, so close she could see the pores in his skin. Her guilt is clear, and we have six witnesses to testify what they heard. He shook his head, tut-tutting in mock sympathy. Such a shame, one so young with her life ahead of her. Careful, another warder interrupted. The flickering lamplight picked out a squashed nose and oily skin, it was then Sorsha recognised him. Pig boy, the bully from her childhood. Don't provoke her. She has powers. 
She held back a sob, desperation and fear threatening to overwhelm her. Any hopes of mercy faded. Pig Boy had waited a long time for this. He would do his best to seal her fate. The first warder looked unconcerned. She just looks like a scared girl to me. Besides, wouldn't she be working her spells on us right now? She might be thinking of it, said a third. And you know what they say, there's no smoke without fire. From everything we've heard, this girl has roused suspicions for years. Perhaps she's just biding her time, or... He studied Saucer curiously, like she was an object in a museum. Or perhaps she's realising that right at this moment, her home is surrounded, and that any mischief she makes for us won't end well for her mother. Saucer's head snapped up. You leave my ma and sister alone! A couple of the warders flinched at her outburst, but quickly recovered themselves when nothing more followed. Whatever they believed about her, Saucer was aware that they knew exactly the same as she did. She was helpless and at their mercy. That true? The warder shook Winter. Did anyone else help you, her family? No. Winter stared at his feet. Just her. Saucer held in a scream. Why had Winter allowed this to happen? Why hadn't he warned her, or at least tried to? Even if he was afraid, or if the warders had a dagger to his throat, he could have done something. Whistled the wrong whistle, just to give her a chance. The betrayal crippled her, hurting more than a thousand nasty looks ever could. Get her up, someone said. The sooner she's locked in the tower, the better. She won't be able to work her sorcery in there. Saucer winced as rough hands hauled her to her feet. Shackler! It was pointless to resist. Heavy iron manacles snapped onto her wrists, tethered by a thick chain. Dimly, as she was shunted up and into the narrow tunnel, she became aware that Winter was speaking. And you'll keep your word? His voice was earnest. You'll look out for me, and I'll get a better cell, more food. Yes, Winter. The warder drawled. Your helpfulness will be rewarded by the warders, at least. As for the prisoners, I can't promise anything. What? No one likes a snitch. And that's just what you are, Winter. A snitch. And with that, Saucer understood why Winter hadn't warned her, or tried to. Because he had been part of the trap they had set for her, and he had bargained for his own good. She felt his treachery as fiercely as if it were an open, bleeding wound. She felt weak, a fool. How could he betray her after all she had risked for him? She thought this was as bad as it got. She was wrong. No one saw them leave. Four warders marched Saucer down to the cove, jeering as she stumbled. There were two boats in the cove, each with their own boatman, one for her and the other, presumably, for winter, although she never saw him board it. For most of the journey, the warders divided their time between watching her in pairs or playing cards. None of them spoke to her, and she remained quiet, watching the hulking mass of repent approaching. Several times she thought about jumping overboard, and would have if she had ever learned to swim. When the boat ran ashore, she was forced to jump out into the shallow water, soaking her boots and skirt hem. 
Then she was taken up the incline towards the prison, its high walls blocking out the light. Slimy green moss reached up its stones like the water was trying to pull it down and swallow it. The tower was different. Nothing grew on its walls, and there were no signs anything ever had. It was like the building itself was dead, dead as the cairns that it was made from, and nothing living belonged there or dared to touch it. Inside the high ceiling had been engraved with strange markings and symbols, which the warders gloatingly told her were to prevent dark magic being worked. She could have told them it was needless, for inside the tower felt as lifeless as it looked from the outside, as lifeless as she felt. Magic was a living entity, like hope. Neither had a place in this stony tomb. The room was sparse, with only a horsehair mattress, a wash basin, and a chamber pot. They left her with stale bread and water before the door was bolted behind her. When will I see my ma? She shouted to the retreating footsteps. Please. She received no reply, nor did they ever answer when the door was opened to toss her food and water and empty the chamber pot. She whiled away hours at the windows. She could just make out mainland crowstone, the rooftops, church spire, and high up for all to see, the gallows. All of it so close, and Saoirse had never even been there. She wondered what had happened to Ma and Prue. Were they safe or being held in the prison too, tortured to extract confessions about her, or bribed as Winter had been? No matter how much she begged, the warders would tell her nothing. Day by day, the not knowing ate away at her. She grew thinner, dirtier, and finally resigned herself to never seeing either of them again. And then, after three long months, she had a visitor. It was not her mother. Saoirse had been standing by the window overlooking Crowstone, though she hadn't been looking at the mainland. Today it was only a grey smudge through rain and clouds, so Saoirse had been looking straight down at the ground. It was severe, dizzying. Still she leaned out, wondering how long it would take her to hit the ground if she fell, or leapt. Lost in terrible thoughts, she jumped as the door was pounded three times. Stand back, a warder ordered. The lock clicked and bolts were unlatched. The door opened and two warders entered. One stayed by the door. The other motioned for her to move to the wall, where an iron cuff was shackled to the stone. He clamped it onto her wrist without a word, then stood aside. The warder by the door jerked his head. Someone entered the room, and Saoirse almost wept. Prue, she cried. She tried to run to her sister, forgetting the restraints until they jerked her backwards. Prudence took tiny steps into the tower room, stopping close to the door. Her hands were clasped demurely in front of her, resting on her neat white apron. Saoirse looked down at her own clothes for the first time in weeks. They were filthy, torn. Her hair was wild and unwashed, her nails black and ragged. She looked every bit the witch she was rumoured to be. But none of that mattered, for Prue was here. After all this time, she hadn't been forgotten. How are you, sister? Prue asked. 
Her voice was calm, unreadable. Wretched, said Saucer, and hungry, but it's so good to see you. Her eyes filled with tears, which she blinked angrily away. So far she had managed not to cry in front of the warders, but seeing her sister was wearing away her resolve. She cast a wary look at the warders, wondering if they were going to allow the two girls some privacy, but soon saw that it was a ridiculous thought. They were going nowhere. How is Ma? she asked at last. She has been ill. Prudence gave a little cough. They say it's her nerves and the shock. The doctor has given her a tonic to help her sleep. I've been taking care of everything. Saucer closed her eyes. Poor, poor Ma. This was all Saucer's fault. She should have listened. Ma had always warned her not to use her powers. If she had the chance again, could she have discarded them into the objects years ago and cast them into the sea? It would have meant a safer life, but at a cost of losing part of herself. Without it, she no longer knew who she was. Saucer's eyes snapped open. You appear well, Prue, she said slowly. Have they... Treated you well? Is everything at home as it as it should be? She gave Prue a meaningful look, trying to will her unspoken message into her sister's consciousness. Were the objects safe? Prudence nodded. Yes, all is as it should be. Saucer's flesh prickled uneasily. There was something odd about her sister. She corrected herself. Odder than usual. Her voice, even the way she held herself, it was smug almost. A coil of worry shifted somewhere deep within. All this time, Saucer had been imagining terrible things, worrying and starving. And here was Prue, clean, well-fed, more rosy-cheeked than she had ever been. When will Ma be well enough to visit? she demanded. And why has it taken you so long to come? There will be no more visits. Prue answered, from either of us. The tower room swayed like it had been caught in a gust of wind, but no one else felt it but Saucer. What? Why? Her voice was high and faint. They're not permitted. I was only granted this visit in return for my cooperation. Cooperation? Like Winter had cooperated? What do you mean? Saucer croaked. I have been helping the warders, Prue said. Her pale eyes glittered, so eel-like, so different to the earthy warmth of their mother's eyes. And now they are preparing for your trial. Helping them how? Saucer asked, her insides churned with fear, this new emotion she was growing so used to. Just what had Prue been saying? If you are found guilty, I will pray for you, said Prue in a grave voice. Saucia narrowed her eyes. Guilty of what exactly? The warder next to Prue spoke up. You know why you're here. You're under suspicion of sorcery, dark magic. If you are found innocent, then I wish you a long and happy life. Prue continued. Saucia shook her head, bewildered. If? You make it sound as though either way this is goodbye. It is. 
Prue's eyes bored into her, so cold and full of malice. How could Saoirse ever have made excuses for them? Ma had seen the resentment festering there, and so had Saoirse deep in her own gut. Now she would pay the price for not listening. They've taken pity on me, you see. They're giving me a chance. A chance at what? Saoirse cried. At a normal life, away from the sinners on torment. I'm living on Crowstone now, the mainland. My father had relatives there who took me in. Ma will stay on torment. And there is some happy news. It all happened rather quickly. But I am married. My name is Prudence Widdishins now. Married? Saoirse cried. On Crowstone? How can you leave Ma? We're so different, you and I. Prue continued softly. You were so wild, so stubborn and difficult, and yet still Ma's favourite. I tried so hard to make her happy, tried to be good. I have been good, and I always warned you your magic was a wicked thing that would get you into trouble. Liar! Saoirse yelled. You never said anything of the kind. You wanted to be like me. You said it many times. Prue cast a weary look at the warders. See how she will say anything to lessen her own guilt. She strode towards her, and Saoirse froze as her sister embraced her, leaning close to speak in her ear. For a foolish moment, she clung to the hope that Prue had been playing along with the warders, and that somehow she had worked out a plan to rescue her. Goodbye, Prue whispered, kissing her cheek before backing away. Saoirse lifted her fingers to her skin in horror. Her cheek was tingling from her sister's touch, for her lips had been ice cold. Her mother's words echoed in her head as clearly as the day she had spoken them. She is jealous of you. She wants what you have. For now she knew what her sister was really telling her. There would be no rescue. All this time their mother had been right. Prue had been waiting biding her time. Now her time had come and Saoirse's was over. Saoirse was powerless. Her gifts were no use to her. Prue, however, could do as she pleased with them. Prue had her exactly where she wanted her. I curse you, Saoirse hissed through gritted teeth, to the end of your days and beyond. I curse your blood as long as it flows. Prue's eyes widened, but it was with surprise, not fear. That's enough, the warder nearest to Saoirse said, nodding to Prue. Get her out. The other warder bundled Prudence towards the tower door, but Saoirse was not finished. She lunged against the shackles, the iron cutting into her skin. She barely felt it. I curse you, she screeched. You want Crowstone? You can have it Ever. May you never leave and be as much a prisoner there as I am here. She thought she saw the corners of Prue's mouth curve slightly before she was rushed through the tower door. Bitterness and anger coursed through Saoirse, bubbling away like witch's brew. She sank to the floor, her mind simmering, plotting. Saoirse's curse hadn't scared Prue. She knew that no sorcery could be performed within the tower walls. The only person Saoirse had harmed by uttering those words was herself, for they would add to her apparent guilt. She stared at the window. No sorcery could be worked from inside. But outside, 
It was only a step away, and had she only thought of this before, she could have retained her powers and escaped. Sisterly love, she muttered to herself, rocking, eyes glazed. You're going to pay, Prue, and all the Widdishin sisters after you. Perhaps there was a way she could have her revenge, even if she couldn't save herself. For while she no longer had her magic, a curse was something different. A curse could only come from darkness. And what could be darker than death? Chapter 22 Whump Prue was a Widdershins, Betty exclaimed, or became a Widdershins at any rate, and... and... She paused to take a breath, sickened. She had wondered if one of her ancestors, a warder perhaps, had crossed Saoirse, but had hoped that it had been justified. She hadn't seen this coming, that her family was descended directly from Saoirse's traitorous half-sister. So much for family, Colton said, his lip curled in disgust. He fell silent for a moment, Betty guessed that he was thinking, as she was, of the Widdershin's name scratched into the tower walls. As he spoke next, she heard a trace of guilt. She betrayed Saoirse in exchange for her way off torment. Saoirse knew she had no way out, Betty whispered, and no magic left. But by jumping to her death, she could create a curse and have her revenge on Prue. Trouble was... Fingerty said. When she invoked that curse, she cursed Prudence's blood, which then became the Widdershin's blood. And my family has paid for it ever since, said Betty. Prue had betrayed and stolen to forge herself a new life, tainting the Widdershins forever. The magical heirlooms had never belonged to them. She felt crushed by grief and disgust. All this time she had thought they were the victims, not knowing they were the villains too. Overwhelmingly, she realised she wanted to put things right, not just for the Widdershins, but for Saoirse. She was beginning to understand what three months in the tower had done to Saoirse's mind. Three months of being twisted by loneliness, only to find out that she had been betrayed by someone she loved. Betty tried to imagine how she would feel if Fliss or Charlie ever did such a thing and found she couldn't. It was too unthinkable, too poisonous. Because of this, she could only find pity and not hatred for Saoirse. Fingerty's stories had brought her understanding of how the curse had come about, but she still saw no way to undo it. If you knew about our family's link to Saoirse, why didn't you say anything? Betty asked. Fingerty looked perplexed. Why would I? He said at last. No one ever asked until you. Even if they had, what good would it have done? I don't know how to break the curse. You think Bunny would have thanked me for pointing out she has descended from a traitor and a thief? She's kicked people out of the poacher's pocket for mentioning Sorcerer's name. She's that proud. Granny? Granny knew about Prue, Betty whispered. It wasn't hard to believe. Her grandmother was terribly proud. She'd once thrown a horseshoe at a customer for mentioning their father's prison sentence, even though it was common knowledge. The journey lapsed into silence. 
Betty turned Saucer's story over and over in her mind, but the answers still eluded her. Her worries kept returning to Fliss and Charlie and the abrupt end to their snatched conversation. She could only pray that Jared hadn't discovered the mirror's secret and taken that from Fliss, too. It was past noon when Betty, Colton and Fingerty arrived in Windy Bottom and the rasping in Betty's head was driving her to distraction, adding to her growing dread. After scrambling off the wagon at a crossroads, they followed the signs to the shabby little town. As they searched the streets for any sign of a mill, Betty got the impression that Windy Bottom was the sort of place no one stuck around in for long. Buildings were crumbling, the streets were sludgy, once or twice they forgot they were invisible and spoke when they shouldn't have, much to the bewilderment of passing strangers. What if they're not here? Betty said, trying to stop her voice from rising. What's to have stopped Jared taking them somewhere else by now? Nothing, said Colton quietly. It would have been the most sensible thing for Jared to do if he meant to cover his tracks. Betty glared at him. I was hoping you'd say something to make me feel better. She stomped away from him, finding her way onto a little bridge whose walls were flaking like pastry. If her sisters were gone, there was no way of finding them, unless Fliss could use the mirror to make contact. And with no way to break the curse, Betty felt as lost as her sisters. Hope was draining away. Fingerty trudged after her, looking thoroughly fed up. Colton followed with an apologetic look. Just being honest but there's every chance they could still be here. Jared wouldn't have thought we'd get past the devil's teeth or across the marshes unseen without the bag. I don't think he'd be expecting us any time soon, if at all. And there's another thing on our side. He doesn't know Fliss used the mirror to tell us exactly where he'd taken them. If I were him, I'd think I was well hidden. That's if he didn't wake up and catch her, Betty said darkly. Had Jared discovered the mirror's power? Fliss had vanished so abruptly and not reappeared since. She felt her face crumble and had to turn away when the tears came, but now she had started, she found she couldn't stop, and she hated it. She had always mocked Fliss for her easy tears and always avoided weeping herself. After all, it solved nothing. To her surprise, it was Fingerty who handed her a grubby handkerchief. A small act of kindness made her cry harder. Eventually, her sobs gave way to sniffles, and she blew her nose into the hanky. It was time to be practical. Colton waited patiently until she had composed herself before he spoke. Feel better now? Not really, she sniffed. She handed Fingerty his soggy handkerchief. She swayed on her feet as a sudden vision swam before her eyes, something she had seen before. A falling from a great height, the ground rushing up, crows circling above, waiting, cawing. It's her, Betty whispered. The last thing she saw and heard, the crows. That's why we can hear them now. Her heart wrenched as she stared out across the bridge. Fliss, Charlie, she whispered, where are you? Tears were threatening to come once more, but she held them back, shielding her eyes as the sun emerged from the clouds. She moved across the bridge, drawn by the sight of an overgrown merrypenny bush. A few mouldering berries were oozing on its branches, but the bush had been plucked almost bare. 
She remembered a morning back in summer when she, Fliss and Charlie had picked Merry Pennies in the fields. As they'd filled their baskets, Fliss had regaled them with Granny's superstitions, how it was unlucky to pick the berries after sundown, and how you should never eat them after Halloween, because imps would have danced all over them. Granny also knew a recipe to boil them up into a potent liquor, which she did every year while singing the old nursery rhyme about them. The merry pennies in the meadow, silver by the night, were hopped upon by midnight imps who danced by pale moonlight. Betty would do just about anything to hear Fliss's dreadful warbling again. A berry bobbed in the wind like it was agreeing sadly. Betty stared past it, standing up straighter. On a hill directly ahead was a dilapidated building, its once grand sails useless as broken bird's wings, its windows boarded up. It was so bleached and faded, and its sails so sparse, that at first she had mistaken it for an old water tower or beacon. She turned, beckoning Colton. Look, there! Already she was scrambling towards it, kicking up dust on the road, Colton hurried after her with Fingerty, who was regarding the eerie-looking place with trepidation. Slow down, Colton hissed after her. We can still be heard, remember? Of course I remember, Betty retorted, but it was hard to hold herself back, knowing she might be moments away from seeing her sisters again. As they neared, Betty slowed, scanning the windows. The mill was isolated and looked as though it had been empty for some years. The weatherboards were decaying, and the whole place looked like a rotten tooth sticking out of the scrubby land. The sounds of their approach were camouflaged by the boggy ground. Heart racing, Betty searched the windows for any sign of movement, but it was impossible to see past the boards that had been nailed over them. This was the right place, she was sure of it. But were her sisters still there? This time, they were the ones with the element of surprise, not Jared. With the doll's magic, she could help her sisters escape, for Jared couldn't catch what he couldn't see. It was here, however, that Fingerty hesitated. I don't like this, he muttered. If the warders catch me with him, that'll be the end. They'll think I masterminded all of this. Pull yourself together, Betty hissed. Fingerty stopped walking. I want to go back. Colton elbowed him. Shut up. You'll give us away if you keep wittering. Remember what's in it for you said Betty. If you help capture Jared, you'll be pardoned, and... And if I make it back, I'll see you get free drinks in the poacher's pocket for the rest of your miserable life. Deal? Fingerty smacked his lips, considering. Yep. They approached the mill in silence. Now they were closer, Betty could see chunks of wood on the ground where the door had been torn away, and the overgrown grass had been trampled down. Someone had been here recently. Betty turned to Colton. How do we get in? Even if we are invisible, Jared's probably barricaded the door. Colton looked up at the mill. Let's check every window. One might not be boarded, or there could be a cellar trap door. He pressed a finger to his lips as they edged round the back of the building. There, Betty whispered, pointing. Look! A tiny window was above their heads. A plank of wood had been nailed across it, but one side had worked loose. It's too small and too high, Colton whispered. I could look through and see if they're there, Betty said. If they are, perhaps I can draw Jared away from the door and you and Fingerty could break it open. Quickly, lift me up. 
Colton linked his hands, ready for Betty's boot, but before he could hoist her up, there was a loud thump from inside the building. They froze. Maddeningly, Betty couldn't hear much more over the noise of the crows in her head. Silence followed. What was... She began, breaking off as the tiny window came flying open and a tangled head appeared. Two small hands reached onto the sill. Charlie! Betty whispered, dizzy with relief. Charlie lifted her head, her pointed elfin face confused. Who's there? It's me, Betty. Hold on. Betty, is that really you? Came another voice muffled from inside the mill. Fliss! Betty gasped. She emptied the dolls, rushing to make herself, Fingerty and Colton visible again. What's going on in there? Where's Jared? I tricked him into getting drunk, Fliss answered. He's sprawled right in front of the door and the bag is stuck under him. We can't free it. Colton held out his arms to Charlie. Jump, I'll catch you. You better, said Charlie, eyeing the drop. She leapt like a frog through the air and Colton caught her neatly. She gave him a quick hug, then slithered down him like he was a tree and ran to Betty, who scooped her up and squeezed fiercely. She had never been more grateful to feel her little sister's arms around her. I knew you'd find us, Charlie said loyally. Looks like you didn't need my help to escape, Betty said, stroking her hair. She marvelled at how happy Charlie seemed when escaping from Jared was only part of a much bigger problem. Did Charlie understand the curse and what it meant? Or did she simply have faith that Betty was going to figure out a way to somehow make everything all right? The burden of responsibility weighed as heavily as the stone in her pocket. Come on, Betty's voice was hoarse with emotion. We've got to help Fliss. She squealed suddenly as something warm and furry wriggled at her collar. Charlie, you've still got that bleeding rat. Of course I've still got him. Charlie replied huffily. She scooped the rat up and put him on her shoulder. You don't leave friends behind. I'm surprised Jared hasn't killed him, Betty said grimly. He tried. Charlie's eyes narrowed. But I managed to hide him, she grinned. And then we got him back, didn't we, Hoppet? They moved to the front of the mill, shoving at the door. Thuds came from the other side as Fliss tugged and swore, words that she could only have heard from Granny. Colton's eyebrows shot up. It's not budging, Fliss fumed. Jared's too heavy. Wait, it is, said Colton. I felt it give. We all need to push and pull together. On three. One, two, three. Betty dug her heels into the grass and pushed for all she was worth. She was reminded of how heavy Jared had been when they'd lifted him onto Colton's prison bed. Had that really just been a few hours ago? It seemed like another lifetime. Colton used his shoulder to ram the door, shattering the partially rotten wood, and even Charlie and Fingerty shoved. Little by little, the door began to move and they could hear Fliss more clearly through a narrow gap. Just a little way more. The gap widened. Betty could see a limp, meaty hand through it and a low groaning as Jared flopped uselessly on the other side. Finally, the gap was just wide enough to slip through. Quickly, Colton cried, urging Fliss to come through. Let's get out of here. But before Fliss had even got her breath back, Betty had pushed past and was inside the windmill with her, hugging her tightly. There was a thick, sweet smell in the air that Betty recognised. 
It reminded her of home. It was a moment before she noticed that something about Fliss felt different. She stood back to look at her and gasped. For Fliss's glossy dark hair, which had once tumbled down her back in smooth flowing locks, had been hacked away unevenly and was now too short even to tie a ribbon in. Oh, Fliss, she murmured in dismay. Your hair, your beautiful hair, what happened? Jared, said Charlie, who had squeezed through the door with them. He chopped it all off because he caught Fliss looking in the mirror. She shot a look of contempt at the sprawling body on the floor. Jared's eyelids fluttered at the mention of his name. His head lolled to one side, tongue out like a dog. Betty shot him a look of loathing. How dare he? He said it'd teach me not to be so vain, Fliss said in a choked voice. It'll grow back if we live past sunset. Let's worry about that after we get out of here, Betty said fiercely. She didn't have the heart to confess to Fliss that she was no closer to breaking the curse, but they could at least escape Jared and see Granny one last time. Quickly, the bag! She released Fliss as Colton slipped through the door with Fingerty close behind. Together they knelt by Jared. The bag's handles were poking out from under his back, and Charlie tugged at them impatiently. Careful, Charlie, Betty warned. We don't want it ripping. What exactly did you do to him? Colton asked. He sniffed the air suspiciously. He sent me out for food, said Fliss, keeping Charlie here with him, of course, so I had no choice but to return. He he threatened to hurt her if I got help. I had no money, so I was forced to steal a few things, but then on the bridge I spotted some merry pennies. That's it, Betty exclaimed, sniffing again. I knew I recognised that smell. I poured them up with honey, like how Granny does said Fliss. She cast a scornful look at Jared. The greedy oaf couldn't get them down his neck fast enough, even though it took rather a lot to get him like this. Greedy oaf, Charlie agreed. I stirred in a little something from Hoppet too, she added mischievously, stroking the rat's nose. That's one way to improve Fliss's cooking, Betty said. Hey, said Fliss. She wagged a finger at Charlie. And that's disgusting, you know. He deserved it. Charlie said with a shrug. Told you we'd get him back. What'll we do with him, though? Fingerty asked, one of his eyes twitching nervously. I ain't watching over him like this. He's bound to come round soon. Charlie pointed, bouncing with mischief. A sturdy trapdoor was set in the floor. Chuck him down there. Good, said Colton. We can throw him in and lock it. With a generous heave, they succeeded in rolling Jared towards the wall. He belched as his head flopped the opposite way. He hit the floor with a thump, landing on his side and leaving the bag free. Fliss pounced, snatching it up. She had just delved into it and removed the mirror, which Jared had evidently confiscated too. But her triumph ended as Jared's eyes flew open and with a drunken lurch, he seized her ankle. You're going nowhere, flower, he slurred, his face alive with rage. And neither is the brat. My name, Fliss said through gritted teeth, is not flower or petal or, she shot Colton a warning glance, princess. My name is Felicity Widdershins. She lifted her other foot and brought it down on Jared's hand, hard. 
Jared yelped and released her to nurse his crushed fingers. He rolled onto his knees, red-faced, raging and swaying. And my name, Charlie declared, isn't Brett. It's Charlie. So there. She grabbed the travelling bag from Fliss and swung it at Jared. It hit him full in the chops with a satisfying whoomp. That's for kidnapping us. And that, she swung the bag again, whoomp. It's for chopping my sister's hair off. And this... She brought the bag down on Jared's head with a third donk. It's for my granny, because she'd bash you one if she was here. Too right, Betty agreed, momentarily enjoying the small triumph. No matter what happened now, at least her sisters were by her side where they belonged. Fliss dodged as Jared lunged for her again and yanked the trap door open. It spewed out musty air and dust. Jared's eyes widened, but he had no time to save himself as his own weight and poor balance carried him forward to teeter on the edge. For a moment, there was a flash of victory in his eyes as he regained his footing before Charlie stepped behind him and gave the bag one last swing. One for luck! The bag hit him between the shoulder blades, propelling him forward into the dark space, a series of clashes and bangs followed as he hit the bottom, and a cloud of dust and cobwebs flew up. Fliss slammed the trap door and bolted it shut. Hope you like spiders, Charlie crowed gleefully, dancing on the trap door. Well, well, princess, Colton said, gazing at Fliss in admiration. I never knew you had it in you. Neither did I, said Fliss, but these crows in my head are making me really cranky. And don't call me princess. That takes care of him. Betty took Charlie's hand, feeling a rush of pride for her sisters. For a while, at least, she said, as Jared bellowed and cussed from below. Something thudded against the trap door from the underside. She turned to Fingerty. Jared's all yours now. That should hold off for long enough for you to alert the warders. Fingerty's face creased into something that might have been a smile. You widdershins, he said, shaking his head. You're all as barmy as you like. Brave, though. You've got guts, just like Bunny. I hope so, said Betty. And was it her imagination, or had a blush crept into Fingerty's leathery old cheeks at the mention of Granny? She decided she didn't want to know. And I hope you get your pardon. Fingerty squinted, looking thoughtful. Yup. Fliss nodded to him. See you in the poacher's pocket. We hope, Betty added silently. Her jubilation was already beginning to ebb away. She had her sisters back, but was no closer to the answer they so desperately needed, and time was running out. Granny would know they were gone, and so must everyone else now Betty and Charlie hadn't turned up for school that morning. Would people already be searching Crowstone's streets, calling their names? Betty? Charlie slipped her hand into Betty's. I want to go home now. Me too, Betty answered. But even if we get to see Granny again, going home can't save us. By sunset... But it can, said Charlie. I know how. It's not that simple, Charlie, Fliss said gently. She cast a worried glance at Betty. I told you before, remember what Granny said about the curse? Of course I know about the curse, Charlie roared, surprising them all. 
She stamped her foot. I was there when Granny told us, remember? And these birds squawking in my head aren't exactly letting me forget. Charlie, calm down, Bessie said, startled. I will if you listen to me, Charlie raged, but no one ever does. Colton knelt down in front of her and took her grubby hand in his. Go on, Charlie. We're listening. We use the bag to take us back to the start, before it happened, see? Betty stared at her, baffled. Back to the start of what? Back to the poacher's pocket before we ever left. Then the curse won't happen and we'll be safe and the blasted birds will stop. Charlie gave Colton an apologetic look. Only thing is, you'll still be in prison. Fliss sighed tiredly. Charlie, Poppet, it's a lovely idea, but I don't think the bag can be used to go back in time. I know it can take us anywhere, but any when? Even if it could, there would still be the other three of us already back in that time, and then things would get, well, rather complicated. I know. Charlie said seriously. I thought that when I went back to the church hall to get another bread roll. I was nearly seen by the other me who was getting the first one. Wait, what? Bessie could hardly breathe now as Charlie's revelation exploded in her head, momentarily drowning out the crows. Hope and excitement thrummed in her chest. Was it true? Had they really had the means to save themselves all along? She searched her little sister's face, not quite able to believe what she was hearing. Are you saying you used the bag to... to go back in time so you could get second helpings of food? I was hungry, said Charlie with a shrug. I thought it was worth a try. Her tummy rumbled loudly. Fliss gaped. You mean all that time you were messing around with the bag and practising with it without telling another soul? Of course, Charlie grinned. That bag is my pinch of magic, or it will be when Granny's finished with it. It wasn't fair that I had to wait while you two had all the fun with yours. Charlie Widdershins, Betty said, sweeping her sister into a hug. You are brilliant. Greedy and sneaky, but brilliant. Charlie preened. I told you you'd need me. But how can this possibly work? Fliss shook her head, astounded. You heard what Charlie said. When she went back, there was another, another her. Even if we go back, how do we stop? Charlie's idea is almost perfect, Betty said, turning the possibilities over in her mind. If the bag could take them back to Crowstone before they'd ever set the curse in motion, what was to stop it taking them back to before? Before the curse ever existed. It wouldn't solve all our problems and might even create more, she said, speaking hurriedly now. We'd still be trapped in Crowstone under the curse and there would be two of each of us, not to mention Colton would still be in the prison. So what then? Charlie huffed. You said it was brilliant. It is, Betty insisted, hugging her. We need to go further back, before any of us were even born, before the curse was even made. Back to Crowstone, the day Saoirse Spellthorn died. We're going to stop her falling from the tower. Fliss's mouth dropped open. You really think this can work? Even if the bag takes us back, where could she escape to? We'd bring her back with us, here, said Betty. 
After the mounting feeling that all had been lost, Charlie's revelation had renewed her strength and courage. They had had the answer the whole time. They could save not only themselves, but put right the terrible wrong that Saoirse had suffered too. Where no one would know her. We have to help her, don't you see? These objects, the bag, the mirror and the dolls, they were all Saoirse's. They were never meant for the Widdershins. When she put her powers into them, she did it hoping that they'd be used to rescue her. But no one ever did. Until now, only the Widdershins can save her. And if it doesn't work? Fliss asked. It has to. We're closer than anyone has ever been before. I just know it, said Betty. But we need to think first. It's no good going straight to the tower. None of the objects will work there. The magic is rendered powerless. It'll be dangerous, Fingerty put in, listening intently. There's only one way into that tower and one way out, and it'll be guarded. Colton moved to the door, peering outside. We still have a few hours before sundown. I say we follow Betty's plan, but start off somewhere familiar. We? Fliss asked. Are you coming with us? You three are the reason I'm standing here today. I owe it to all of you, and to Saoirse, to help make things right. Colton's black eyes glittered as he reached out and brushed Charlie's hair off her face. A little girl like you helped me once. Feels like time to pay back the favour. Betty took a deep breath, taken aback by this show of loyalty. Hours ago, she'd hated not only him, but being forced to stick with him out of necessity. She had never dreamed Colton might be someone she'd grow to call a friend. She gave him a small, grateful smile. That's settled then. Let's do it now, quickly, before we can change our minds. She squeezed Charlie's hand. We need you to use the bag to take us to the poacher's pocket. On the morning, Saoirse Spellthorn dies. Can you remember to say that? Charlie's bottom lip quivered. Yes, but... But what? Fliss prompted gently. What if we went back to the poacher's pocket now? Charlie asked. Back to our home and Granny. Her eyes filled with tears. Just for a few minutes. I'll miss her. We can't, said Betty. Granny would be furious. She'd never let us out of our sight again, let alone use any of the magical objects. There is a way we can see her, though, said Fliss. The mirror just to let her know we're all right. Oh, said Charlie, sniffing. Yes, let's do that. Betty nodded, and Fliss held the mirror before the three of them. Their faces were reflected back at them, dirty and tear-stained. Let us see Granny, Fliss commanded. Betty steeled herself as the looking-glass began to cloud over. Anxious as she was to see her grandmother, she knew that no matter how relieved Bunny would be to hear from them, they wouldn't escape an ear-bashing. She was right. Granny came into view as the glass cleared, although the image was still thick with smoke. This time, however, it was pipe smoke. It was clouding round Granny's head so densely that for a moment Betty couldn't work out exactly where Bunny was. Then she caught a glimpse of the kitchen window, with all Granny's charms hanging up. Granny? Fliss said in a small voice. Bunny's head snapped up. Her eyes were puffy and red. Fliss! We're all here, Granny, said Fliss. Betty and Charlie, too. We're safe. Where? 
Granny shrieked, peering at them as they crowded round the mirror. Where are you? You girls come home right now, do you hear? We can't, Granny, said Betty, heartsick to see her poor Granny looking more beaten down and defeated than ever before. This couldn't be the last time Betty would see her. She had to make it back home. Not yet, but we will soon, I promise. Was this your doing, Betty? Granny's voice rumbled like low thunder. Are you using those dolls to stay invisible because I've had half of Crowstone looking for you all? Betty gulped, unable to bring herself to confess that they were no longer in Crowstone. It would only scare Granny further and make her lose all hope. We're so close now, Granny, she said, closer than anyone's ever been to breaking the curse. And it was me who figured it out, said Charlie proudly. Was it now? Granny raged. Well, you'll all be taking an equal share of the blame when you get back. Uh-oh. Charlie was looking distinctly less homesick now. She's awful cross, ain't she? So, anyway, we, um, just wanted you not to worry, Fliss waffled, and we'll be back soon. You'll get back here now, Granny growled. You'll... We love you, Granny, said Charlie. She leaned forward and kissed the mirror. It was enough to make Granny's eyes, which had been narrowed in anger, widen and fill with tears. The sharpness left her voice. And I love you all so much. That's why you must come home and stop this madness. I can't lose the three of you too. We are coming home, Betty said, soon. After we set things right, she added silently, and home won't be a prison anymore. Betty! Her grandmother began. Fliss bit her lip. Sorry, Granny. She turned the mirror over, breaking contact, and took her sister's hands. This is our chance to change things. Not just for us, but for all those Widdishin's girls before us, as well as Saoirse. Charlie bit her lip. All right, let's do this. Chapter 23 A Friend A hundred years had made a great deal of difference to the poacher's pocket and Crowstone generally. They landed in a tangle of arms and legs in a small alley next to the inn, an alley that no longer existed in the girl's future. After they'd brushed themselves down and moved to the front of the street, the first thing Betty noticed was how new and smart everything looked. She was so used to the place looking shabby and run down that it was quite a surprise to see the windows with all their panes intact and the glossily painted doors displaying no signs of flaking. We're here, she thought, trembling with anticipation. We're actually here, and our whole future depends on this working. What is that smell? Charlie said. She screwed up her face and pinched her nose. It's like... like the latrines! I think the streets are the latrines, said Fliss as she took in their surroundings. Ugh, we're right next to the gutters. Before she had even finished speaking, a window of a house across the green was flung open and the contents of a chamber pot thrown out. It worked, though, said Betty, staring around in amazement as the reality of what they had done began to sink in. It really actually worked. We're here, back at the start of it all. Wait, do you hear that? said Charlie. The birds in my head, they've stopped. 
They've gone. Mine too, Fliss exclaimed. And mine, said Betty, realising her pocket felt lighter too. The stone in it had vanished. It's because the curse hasn't been made yet. We've got to make sure it never is. Jumping jackdaws, Charlie exclaimed. Look at the moon. Betty looked up. Though it was broad daylight, the moon was clearly visible, something Granny always said was bad luck. In addition, it was an eerie red which turned the sky pink, almost like sunset. A blood moon, Colton said, spooked. It must be an eclipse, but people from this time won't know that. They'll just take it as a sign of Saoirse's guilt. Betty gazed at the sky. If anything, it'd make me think the opposite, she said an innocent person about to be executed. The doors of the poacher's pocket opened as someone went in. Warm air and the smell of ale gusted over them, making Betty miss home more than ever. Straight away her eyes went to the bar, half expecting to see Granny there. Instead, she met cold, fish-like eyes. She looked away, heart hammering. Fingerty had described her so well that she knew exactly who this girl was. That's her, Betty whispered. Prudence Widdershins, Saoirse's half-sister who betrayed her, and like it or not, we're relations of hers. She paused as a man emerged from the cellar. Something about him reminded her of her father, and from the way Prue was gazing at him, the rest was clear. And that's who she married. The curse and everything that's happened, the reason we're even here is all because of her. She stared at Prudence, longing to slap the simpering face and sickened to think she shared the same blood as this hateful creature. It was a dirty, uncomfortable sensation, which left Betty hankering after a good wash. Betty, Charlie said suddenly, the bag, I can't find it. She turned to look about her, panic-stricken. I must have dropped it in the alley when we landed. The sickening feeling inside Betty intensified as they ran back, retracing their path. The alley was empty. There was no bag and no one in sight. Then Fliss turned to Betty, ashen-faced and rummaging through her own pockets. Before she said a word, Betty knew. The mirror's gone too, Fliss whispered. I don't understand. I had it. I never lose things. You didn't lose it, said Betty. A realisation hit her like a boat striking a rock. She checked her skirt, already knowing the dolls were gone. The curse hasn't been made yet, but we didn't think about what else would happen by us travelling back in time. Colton took a sharp breath. You don't have the objects, because they haven't been passed down the generations to you yet. Exactly said Betty, furious with herself for not foreseeing this. But without the bag, we're stuck here, Fliss wailed, horrified, and Saoirse will make the curse anyway. Slowly, Betty walked back to the door of the poacher's pocket. The others followed, watching as she turned to stare through the window. We might not have the bag, but we know where it is. In there, said Colton, with the dolls in the mirror, Prue has them all. Betty nodded, clenching her teeth. And we know what we have to do. Get them back, Fliss said fiercely. Then after we use them to save Saoirse and get home, we return them to her. They were never proves to begin with. It's already busy in there, 
Colton said, frowning. Surely this place wouldn't normally be open at this hour. Betty glanced at the moon. Then her attention was drawn to the people bustling around them, some lingering outside to gaze at the reddening sky, huddling and pointing in excited whispers. Their eyes gleamed with malice. They're here for the execution, she said hoarsely. They've come to see the witch be hanged at noon. Like crows picking at bones. Serves them right that they've had a wasted journey then, doesn't it? Colton took her hand, squeezing it hard. Think we can do it without being caught? Betty squeezed back, remembering Fingerty's advice. We can if we use a distraction. Releasing Colton's hand, she led the way to the door. Inside, the poacher's pocket crackled with morbid excitement. Whispers of spells, sorceress and magic caught Betty's ears. As they made their way to one of the few empty corners, she kept her eyes on Prue, watching her prim, pointed little face taking it all in. A few times when she thought no one was looking, she gave a secret smile. Betty couldn't wait to wipe it off her face. Right, she said in a low voice as they huddled by one of the fireplaces. Colton and Charlie, you two create a distraction so I can sneak upstairs without being seen. Fliss, you keep watch. If Fishy Eyes or the idiot who married her look like they're about to come up, then you need to warn me. She flashed Fliss a grin. Your terrible singing should do the trick. I'll do my worst, Fliss promised. Ready? Betty asked. Colton nodded. This way, he said to Charlie, leaning in close. I've got an idea. Charlie listened, nodding. They approached the bar where Prue was collecting dirty glasses and her husband was serving. Colton and Charlie stopped by a cluster of glasses ready for washing. Colton leaned on the counter, his elbow sliding nearer to the glasses. Fliss and Betty lurked opposite the door leading upstairs. Betty's mouth went dry suddenly. They were not even at Crowstone Tower yet and already so much could go wrong. More people filtered in, crowding round. Betty glanced at Prue, and for a brief moment their eyes met. Betty stared into the pale depths, so devoid of colour and conscience, and couldn't help a sharp intake of breath. A loud smash broke their gaze as a glass shattered nearby. I'm so sorry, Colton exclaimed as Prue rushed to sweep up the glass. Fliss nudged Betty towards the door. Go, she whispered. Betty slipped past the hatch in the counter towards the stairs. She climbed them in silence, the murmur of voices below masking the creaks. At the top, she paused. Were Prue and her husband the only people here, or could there be other relatives? Hearing nothing, she began to work her way from room to room. How different everything looked. Plainer, but less shabby, and peculiar to see these familiar rooms with no traces of themselves or granny. Betty began with Granny's room, the largest. Here she found neat rows of pressed clothes belonging to Prue and her husband in the wardrobes and drawers, some half-completed embroidery and a few books. The dressing table was bare except for a comb and a small pot of hand salve. No mirror, no dolls, no bag. Betty's heart began to pound, worry rising like the tide. Where were they? Surely Prue would have them here, safe with her. She hurried into the other rooms, Fliss's and the one she and Charlie shared. 
Both were furnished and pristine, but unlived in. Guest rooms. She left them, searching the kitchen. Nothing. She paused in the hallway. The only other place she could check was the office downstairs, but it was sure to be locked. Unless... She moved to the cupboard on the landing and opened it, half expecting it to be as sparse as the rest of the place. To her surprise, it was just as cluttered with junk now as it was in the present day. Would Prue hide her stolen treasures in this jumbled magpie's nest of buckets and brooms? She was cunning enough. Betty edged in, swallowing her childhood fears to sift through crates, a broken mangle, a cloth bag of pegs. How she hated this damp cupboard. They all did. She stiffened as shrieks and cries of, Rat! Rat! from downstairs reached her ears. This had to be part of Colton's plan too, she guessed, keeping them busy, distracted. She rummaged further, lifting piles of old newspapers off a trunk. She lifted its lid, and her stomach somersaulted. Inside the trunk was a familiar wooden box with W inscribed into the lid. She lifted it out, heart-crashing, hope-soaring. The weight of its contents shifted. This was where Granny had taken the dolls from, where they had been kept all those years. There was no time to search for the key or pick the lock. She considered smashing it open before remembering the mirror. No, dare she risk carrying it downstairs and walking out with it? Also, no. She clambered out of the cupboard, studying the box. Perhaps with a knife she could prise it open. She ran into the kitchen, hunting until she found a small vegetable knife. It was then that inspiration struck. If she couldn't get in through the lock, there was another practical way. She set about unscrewing the hinges, her hands shaking so much she kept losing her grip. Finally, one was off. Betty tugged at the lid, but the other hinge held firm. Through a gap, she could now see curved painted wood and a glimmer of gilt. They were inside. Quickly, she worked on the second hinge. Seconds later, it hit the kitchen tiles with a ping, a loose screw rolling beneath the table. Betty slipped her fingers under the lid, tugging. There was a destructive but satisfying splintering of wood as she reached in and carefully removed the objects, along with a small pouch of jewellery. A wedding gift to Prue, perhaps. She discarded this, then froze as a familiar voice warbled from below. The merry pennies in the meadow, silver by the night. A faint creak sounded on the stairs. Someone was coming. Betty darted behind the kitchen door, clutching the objects to her chest. Light footsteps padded past the kitchen, then stopped. Heart hammering, Betty placed the bag and the mirror on the floor and pulled a hair from her head. Quickly, she opened the nesting dolls and placed the hair inside, rendering herself invisible. Taking a breath to steady her nerves, she crept out of the kitchen. Prue was standing completely still in front of the cupboard. The door had swung open where Betty had forgotten to latch it, and its contents were in disarray. The heavy trunk lay open and empty. No. Prue whispered, shaking her head suddenly. She snapped out of her frozen trance and staggered to the door. No, no, no! She stood at the door, emitting quick little breaths that were like gasps. A wicked idea popped into Betty's head. She almost dismissed it, but something stopped her. 
If Prue suspected Saoirse was behind the object's disappearance, she might try to contact her and botch the rescue. No, Betty decided. It was safer for Prue to be kept out of mischief. With that, she strode swiftly and purposefully towards the other girl. Prue whipped round at the sound of Betty's footsteps. Her eel-like eyes widened, and in them Betty caught a glimmer of fear and understanding. Who's there? she began. Wordlessly, Betty reached out and pushed hard. With a shocked cry, Prue stumbled backwards into the dank depths of the cupboard. Betty slammed the door, latching it fast. Rattles and thuds came from within as Prue clambered over piles of junk. There was a thump from the other side of the door as she found it. Who's there? she repeated, voice shrill. Again, Betty hesitated. She should just leave, but some sense of honour kept her there, listening to Prue's frightened breathing on the other side of the door. People had died because of her. Betty's family and Saoirse had suffered because of her. And Betty knew she had to have the last word. A friend, she said in a fierce whisper. F friend? But I don't have any. A friend of Saoirse's. Betty cut in. Not yours, Prudence Widdershins. You had a friend. The best kind of friend. A sister. And you betrayed her. Her voice cracked and she fought to keep it under control. But you haven't won. Not this time. I, I don't, don't understand. No, Betty said softly. And now you never will. Silently, she backed away to the kitchen. She collected the bag and mirror, hiding them beneath the folds of her unseen clothes before retreating downstairs. The poacher's pocket had descended into a fracas. Fliss's song had struck up a bawdy rendition with some of the other customers joining in, while dozens more were thumping on the bar to be served. Shattered glass crunched underfoot, but the cries of rat had been drowned out. She spotted Fliss some way along the counter, having been jostled out of position, Elbowing her way through the thickening crowd, Betty grabbed her sister's arm and leaned close to her ear. Fliss, it's me. I got them. Betty? Fliss reached for her blindly, weak with relief. Get the others, Betty said in a low voice, spying Charlie and Colton near the door. And then let's get out of here. Outside, Betty hurried to the deserted alley and made herself visible before returning to the street where she almost collided with the others coming the opposite way. You did it! Charlie squeaked, hugging her. Only just, Betty answered, handing her the bag and passing the mirror to Fliss. Come on, we need to move. I could get us to the tower with the bag, Charlie suggested eagerly. No, not yet said Betty. We can't just arrive at the prison. We need to know what we're dealing with and get a plan in place. She cast a fearful look over her shoulder, half expecting Prue to burst out of the doors of the poacher's pocket. Follow me. Chapter 24 Crowstone Tower They hurried towards the marshes, weaving around more people coming from the direction of the ferry. Though much of Crowstone was different, with familiar buildings missing or replaced by others, everything was still recognisable. Despite Granny's frequent references to it, Betty still felt a jolt of shock when they reached the crossroads. A tall gallows stood on a grassy mound. 
Steps led up to a wooden platform where a heavy rope noose was swaying in the breeze. Groups of people clustered nearby, staring and whispering. No wonder Granny hates the crossroads, Fliss said, glassy-eyed with horror. She said this was here when she was a little girl, and she's never forgotten it. It's so... so awful. Dreadful things have happened here. Betty pursed her lips. We can make one less awful thing happen. They reached the shore, heading away from the ferry to a small, empty fishing cove. They picked their way through the shingle, mud squelching underfoot. Across the water, crowstone prisons squatted like a giant toad, eyeing them like flies it planned to swallow. Between the three of you, you have all you need to get into the tower unseen and get Saucer out, said Colton. Though it wasn't warm, a film of sweat slicked his forehead. You just need to figure out how. The tower will be guarded. Fliss took the mirror out, keeping it half hidden within the folds of her shawl. Show us the guards at Crowstone Tower, she whispered. Immediately, her reflection vanished and a warder appeared at the foot of the stone tower they knew so well. A cluster of keys hung from his belt. Beyond him lay the door which entered the tower. One guard said Colton, and one way in, but you need those keys. Betty nodded. The objects can help us before we're through that door, but after that it's down to us to get Saucer out of the tower room without magic. Fliss drew her shawl over the mirror's surface, breaking the vision. The dolls are the best chance of stealing the keys, said Betty. After that we distract him away from the door to get past him. Someone then needs to wait outside to keep watch and lure him away again when Sorcerer is safely out of the tower and down the steps. Fliss nodded slowly. So at least one of us needs to stay outside and wait. Betty looked expectantly at Colton. He had the most knowledge of the prison layout and the warders, but he seemed troubled, his gaze returning to the prison. She could see the dread in his eyes, feel it coming off him in waves. For the first time, she realised how afraid he must be of returning to the place he'd only just escaped. I'll do it, Fliss offered. Once everyone's out of the tower, it doesn't matter if you're seen, Colton murmured. The bag will take care of everything else in an instant. Betty frowned. Something about Colton's words was bothering her, but she couldn't quite work out what it was. How long until noon? she asked, looking up. The pale red moon floated like a bad omen. I reckon you've got about an hour. Colton took a shaky breath. But I... I... What? Fliss asked, sensing his sudden hesitation. But Betty already knew. You didn't say we. He kept his eyes down, unable to look at any of them. Betty couldn't help but think back to when they had first met, when Colton had swaggered into the visiting room full of bravado. All she saw now was a scared young man. I don't think I can go back there. Where? Fliss demanded. The prison? Any of it, he mumbled. The prison and back... back to our time. Betty's mouth dropped open. What exactly are you saying? that you want to stay here, in in the past. Or well, why not? 
Colton's head snapped up, anger flashing in his eyes. What is there for me to go back to? Nothing, that's what. No family, nothing but a life of looking over my shoulder, wondering if my past is about to catch up with me. At least here I can start fresh, knowing I'm not being hunted. I don't belong there. But, but, she faltered, struggling to process his words and the strength of her feeling against them. Why should it matter? The little voice in her head asked. Even if she had come to call Colton a friend, she knew she would never see him again after all this ended. His past would never go away. But if he stayed here, he would be the past too. And the thought filled her with sorrow. Maybe not, said Betty. But you don't belong here either. You deserve more than this. She gestured to the gallows. Do you really want to live in a world that's worse than the one we know? Colton shrugged, a muscle twitching obstinately in his jaw. No, but the point is, I'll live. The sky was darkening with clouds, turning a bruise-like shade. Betty's heart quickened. We don't have much time, so this is goodbye, Colton. And good luck. She held out her hand to shake his, but to her surprise, he pulled her into a hug. Good luck to you too. His voice was muffled. I know none of this was really about freeing me, but I'm grateful to you, all of you. Without you, I'd still be inside those walls, rotting. He released Betty and ruffled Charlie's hair, then turned to Fliss. Farewell, princess. I'm not, Fliss began. I know, I know. A small smile tugged at his mouth. He lifted his fingers to Fliss's short hair. It suits you he said softly, dropping his hand. Wait. Fliss bit her lip, then, blushing bright pink, stood on her tiptoes and kissed Colton on the lips. For luck, she said, her eyes shimmering with tears as she returned to her sisters. A lump rose in Betty's throat. Perhaps in Colton, her sister had finally found someone who wouldn't fall at her feet, whom she wouldn't eventually tire of. Or perhaps this was just another silly fliss kiss. Either way, time wasn't their friend, so they would never know. It would forever be a kiss of kindness, of lost chances and what-ifs. Betty rolled her eyes, doing her best to sound scathing. Well, you just wouldn't be you if you went a day without kissing someone, would you? Oh, be quiet, Fliss snapped. Let's go. Charlie, the bag. Wait! This time, the voice was Colton's. He jogged to Fliss's side and linked his arms in hers. You changed your mind, she asked, her eyes shining. I lost my nerve for a minute there, he smiled at Fliss. But now, I'm feeling pretty lucky. I'm feeling sick, Betty announced, but she couldn't help smiling. Right, everyone ready this time? Really ready? She took the nesting dolls, reaching for the inner ones into which she placed the little bits belonging to each of them. She twisted the halves to a line, making them all invisible. Stowing them safely in her pocket, she linked arms with Fliss and Charlie, nudging her youngest sister. Now! Charlie took a deep, bracing breath. Crowstone Tower, she whispered. I'm never, ever going to get used to this feeling, Betty thought as the shingle whooshed from under her. Briny air bit her cheeks and forced her eyes closed, and she heard Fliss gurgle a nauseous, Oh! 
They landed as clumsily as ever, and though Charlie somehow managed to stay on her feet, the rest of them didn't fare so well. To Betty's dismay, Colton cried out upon landing as his left leg gave under him. Though he bit it back almost immediately, the sound echoed off the walls of the stone courtyard they found themselves in. Above, crows scattered and squawked. Betty released her grip on Fliss and Charlie and stepped back, staring up at the tower whose shadow loomed over them. The sheer distance to the top made her woozy. She had never been so close to it, never realised just how high it was. She blinked, and a vision of falling flashed before her eyes, dizzying her. No, she could not let that happen. She was so busy searching the windows that she failed to notice the heavy wooden door until a warder came charging through it. His eyes darted round the courtyard in suspicion. In one hand, he held a thick wooden baton. His other hand rested on his belt by an iron hook holding two keys. He squinted at a skid in the gravel, then frowned up at the tower windows. Satisfied nothing sinister was afoot, he returned to the tower wall next to the unlocked door, which was ajar. Content he was apparently alone, he took out a pipe and began craftily stuffing it with tobacco, ready to dart back through the tower door if any other warders appeared. Fliss and I will go together, Betty mouthed. I'll steal the keys, then we'll sneak up the stairs to get Saucer. Colton, you stay here with Charlie until we return, and here. She pushed the nesting dolls into Colton's hands. Keep hold of these. Once we're through that door... Fliss and I won't be invisible, but taking the dolls into the tower would mean you and Charlie wouldn't stay hidden either. Hearts pounding and hardly daring to breathe, Betty and Fliss crept closer to the warder as quietly as they could over the gravel. With each footstep, Betty's chest thumped harder, and for the first time she was grateful for the cries of the crows circling overhead to mask any sounds of their approach. When they were a mere stride away, Betty reached out and with a shaking hand wrapped her fingers around the keys to stop them rattling. With her other hand, she eased the hook slowly out of the warder's belt. She almost dropped the keys when the warder went into a bout of coughing, but somehow held her nerve. To her relief, the keys dropped into her hand. In a cloud of the warder's smoke, they backed away, glancing back to where Colton and Charlie were watching anxiously. Then they approached the tower door. Betty steeled herself and pushed the door, waiting for a creak to betray them. It opened soundlessly. She stared at Fliss in amazement and delight as they slipped into the tower, unable to believe how easily they had managed it. Through the open door, they saw Colton and Charlie dancing a silent jig of celebration. They were standing in a narrow, dank passage with a curving flight of steps leading up. Betty motioned for Fliss to creep ahead and began to follow. It was then that things went catastrophically wrong when Betty tripped on the very first step. At the sound of her stumbling, Fliss spun round and made a grab for her, but it was too late. The noise had alerted the warder, and now they were inside the tower, they were without the power of the dolls to keep them hidden. They froze on the staircase as the warder loomed in the doorway, the pipe falling from his open mouth in shock. Yet as well as surprise, his face registered fear and confusion. Who are you? he stammered. Where did you come from? He reeled as he spied the keys in Betty's hand and took a step back. Wraiths, 
he yelled in a choked voice. Spirits! The witch has summoned imps from the marshes! Race, I tell you! Will of the wisps! Send help! Colton hit him at speed, flinging the warder aside. His face was contorted with panic as he bundled Charlie through the tower door. The keys, he hissed, slamming the door shut behind them. Quick! Betty threw the keys neatly and Colton caught them, jamming one in the door. He swore, removed it, then tried the other one. The lock clicked in place, sealing them inside the tower like a tomb. Outside, the warder continued to yell. What have I done? Betty thought. What in Crow's name have I done? If we're caught, we'll never make it home. Up the stairs, Colton gasped, ashen-faced. Hurry, it won't be long before he raises the alarm. Betty grabbed Charlie's hand and began climbing the staircase. What will they do? She croaked helplessly. How will we get out now? I don't know, Colton said as he sat upon the steps behind her. His mouth was pressed in a grim line. All I know is that in a few minutes, half the warders in this prison will be surrounding the tower. Up they went, and up, in a dizzying spiral. Aside from a scattering of tiny windows in the passageway, only a few wall sconces lit the way, sending flickering shadows across the walls as they passed. Ahead of her, Betty heard Fliss's breath coming hard and fast. Next to her, Charlie gripped her hand so tightly her fingers were numb. Behind, Colton's footfall was heavy with exhaustion and dread. For Betty, too, every step became agony, not only from her burning leg muscles, but from the knowledge that their way out of the tower was well and truly blocked. They were every bit as trapped as Saoirse Spellthorn. They had made it to the last turn of the staircase when from outside the tower a sonorous clanging of the prison bell began. The alarm had been sounded. Fliss was first to reach the door at the top. She half slid down it, gasping for breath as Betty staggered towards her, urging Charlie, who had begun to whimper softly. Colton, too, was rasping for air, and his hands shook as he fumbled with the keys, inserting one into the lock and turning it. Despite everything, Betty wondered how she would have felt at this moment if the last few minutes hadn't turned out so disastrously. Quite possibly, she thought, she would have felt excited and a little afraid of what lay in wait on the other side of the door. Only now, there was no time for that. Time for the Widdershins had very nearly run out. Colton gave the door a hard push and stepped inside. Betty followed, her eyes raking over the vast circular tower room, it was all she had expected, gloomy, desolate, sparsely furnished. And then there were the words, walls scrawled with words that descended into meaningless jumble. Too late, she saw the figure silhouetted against the window, arms wide, tawny hair trailing into the tower room behind her as the wind whistled through it. Too late, Betty saw she was already falling. Saucia, no! Betty yelled. Somehow, Saoirse twisted, half-turning to look back at them as she fell. Her eyes were wild and bitter, but there was just time for surprise to register, too. She seemed to hang in the air like a feather for a moment, a question forming on her lips. Then she was gone. Chapter 25 Fly No! Betty moaned. No, no, no. From outside the tower, horrified shouts drifted up. 
Betty sank to her knees, unable to bring herself to go to the window. They had been so close, suffered so much. For what? Her last hope was gone, and so was Saoirse. We're too late. Colton drew Fliss to him with one arm and Charlie with the other. Charlie was weeping quietly, while Fliss was stiff with shock. We were just too late. The keys slid from his hand and landed on the floor. Betty's gaze swept the gloomy, desolate room, taking in the place where Saoirse had lived the final part of her life. This isn't a room, she thought. It's a grave. Numb, she got up and walked to the wall, her fingertips tracing the deep scratches there. Scratches that formed bitter, hateful words. Malice, injustice, cowardice, escape. Widdershins. Betty closed her eyes, but the word remained, like it was etched into her soul. So much hate. How could she have ever thought it possible to undo the curse? How had she ever hoped for such a thing? She thought back to her life in Crowstone, her simple little life that she had scorned for not being enough. Now it seemed it had. And had Betty been a little less bold, less discontented and more like Fliss, she might still have a future to look forward to. And so might her sisters, if they hadn't listened to her. I'm sorry, Betty whispered. I'm sorry, Granny, Fliss, Charlie, and Colton. Her words were lost beneath the monotonous toll of the prison bell. The room was almost in darkness now, the sky outside a hazy orange as the blood moon hovered over the marshes. On the windowsill, a crow landed with an ominous caw, its gleaming eyes on Betty. Go away! she cried, but the creature didn't move. More swooped in through the other windows, settling on wall sconces, the mattress, and anything they could find. Croaking in eerie unison, cries from below drifted in on the freezing air. Betty moved to the window, trance-like. Don't look, she told herself. You shouldn't look. She knew she would have to. Crowstone lay before her, the misty marshes stretching into the distance. The shouts below continued. She forced her eyes down. The ground below was swarming with warders, milling around like an army of ants, yelling warnings, trading orders. She couldn't see a body. Had they moved poor Sorcerer already? Or were there so many of them crowding around it was sparing her the view? Distantly, she heard a thud, thud, thud. What's that noise? She asked dully. They're breaking the entrance door down, Colton replied. Not all of them are superstitious, so it would seem. Betty turned back to the window. Crows spilled through the air, circling the tower. There was no stopping them now. It was over. And then, matted red hair streamed out from below the window like a banner. Betty gasped and leaned over the sill. There, a short way down, Saoirse was clinging to the side of the tower, somehow balanced on a thin ledge above one of the passageway windows. Her face was streaked with dirt, her clothes not much more than rags. 
Betty's shout as Saoirse had begun to fall had been enough to make her hesitate and grab on. Saoirse! Betty cried. A last flicker of hope sputtered back into life from embers. Don't let go! We're here to get you out! In an instant, Fliss and Colton were at her side. Betty leaned over, reaching out. Take my hand! I can't! Saoirse huddled into the wall, squeezing her legs shut. I'll lose my grip! Even as she spoke, one of her legs slipped from beneath her and she scrabbled for purchase. A stone broke away from the wall and began its descent to the ground below. Another followed swiftly after. No! Betty yelled, stretching out towards her. Hold on! We'll pull you back in! Just don't let go! I don't think I can for much longer. Saoirse opened her eyes, casting a terrified look below. I was ready. It took all my courage. And then you called my name, broke my thoughts. You can't do this, Betty told her. I won't let you. Now reach up and take my hand. Saoirse lunged, her fingers brushing the wall, too far from Betty's. Another stone crumbled beneath her fingers and plummeted below. She shrieked, grabbing blindly before finding another. Let me try, Colton urged. Betty moved aside and watched helpless as he leaned over, straining and stretching, yet it was still not enough. An almighty crash and sounds of splintering wood echoed up the stairwell. They're in, Fliss yelled. The waters are in the tower. I'm not giving up. Betty grabbed the keys and ran to the tower room door, throwing it closed and locking it. Fliss, Charlie, help me barricade the door. Together, the three of them began piling everything in the room in front of the door. There were woefully few items, and they all knew it would make little difference. Already there was the sound of footfall on the stairs. They're coming, Charlie shouted. Colton leaned back with a growl of frustration. I can't reach her. We'll have to try something else. He straddled the huge windowsill, swinging his legs over the side. Fliss paled. Colton, no, you'll fall. I won't. He turned to face the tower room, gripping the sill tightly and lowering himself out. Saoirse, grab my legs. This can't work, thought Betty as the warders reached the door to the tower room. Defeat was looming stealthily, smothering her last spark of hope. The sound of wood being pounded on reverberated in her skull, in time with the chimes of the bell. Even if we pull Saoirse in, where do we go from here? The warders have us surrounded. They had only moments before the warders would be in the tower room, before they all would be doomed. Crows circled the tower, calling to them, and for a moment it seemed they were coaxing them into the air, not to their deaths, but perhaps something else. Charlie the bag, Betty cried. Charlie glared at her through a tangle of hair and tears. Huh? Come here, both of you, Fliss. Fliss's eyes were huge like saucers. Betty, no, she whispered. You can't be suggesting. We can't possibly... It's our only chance, Betty roared. She grabbed her sister's hands and pulled them to the window. We know the magic won't work within the tower walls, but the instant we escape them... She broke off, nodding to the sky. No, Charlie whimpered. No, I won't. Yes, Betty hugged her hard. You've trusted me till now, and we know this will work because of you. There was no time to wait for an answer. The door behind them was splitting, sending splinters of wood flying into the tower room. The warders' voices filtered through. They're escaping! The sorceress is escaping with her imps! 
Bessie swung her legs over the windowsill, urging Fliss to do the same. Together they squeezed a trembling Charlie between them and wedged her onto Fliss's lap. She clung to the travelling bag, its ugly fabric clenched between her fingers like a stuffed toy. Bessie braced herself and looked down for the final time. Saoirse was clinging to Colton's legs, his arms still clamped over the window ledge next to Betty. Take my hand, she yelled. He reached for her with difficulty, palm clammy as his weight and much of Saoirse's now hung from his other arm. Sweat beaded on his forehead. Hurry, he begged. I can't hold us both much longer. Betty linked her other arm tightly with Fliss's. The wind roared in her ears, sucking at them, willing them to join it. On the count of three, we jump. She turned to Charlie. You know what to do. I can't, Charlie stuttered. Hope it's scared. You have to. It's the only way. But you can do it, Charlie. We know you can. Do it for us and Granny. For the Widdershins. Did you say Widdershins? Saoirse yelled from below. Yes, Betty cried. We're the Widdershins. One, two... The splintered door finally caved and crashed open. Warders flooded into the tower room. Three! Betty shouted, and with a battle cry, they launched themselves into the sky. A handful of stones, perhaps four or five, came away with them, soaring through the air. The crows swooped above, dark silhouettes against the blazing orange moon. Faster than Betty could ever have imagined, they were falling. Home! Charlie yelled. And then, just for a moment... It seemed they really were flying. Chapter 26 Free The air changed from brine to beer-scented, from frost to feathers. Betty hit solid ground, but it was a curiously soft landing. She opened her eyes and found she was lying on her back, staring at familiar oak beams on the ceiling above. The poacher's pocket should have been open and trading, but instead it was deathly quiet and dark, and the windows and doors were locked and barred. Outside was not so quiet. The prison bell was clanging in the distance. Somewhere nearer was the squeaking of a rat. Betty sat up, rubbing her eyes. Had it worked? Were they really back in their poacher's pocket? If it hadn't, then Betty had nothing else to give. All would be lost. She would be lost. There was no sign of Granny anywhere, and the only movement was downy black feathers which were cascading down like ebony snowflakes. She was suddenly aware that someone was still holding her hand. Colton? Am I alive? He groaned, releasing her. I must be. Being dead wouldn't hurt this much. Fliss? Charlie? Betty's voice rose anxiously. She leapt to her feet. Over here. Fliss's voice sounded from near to the fireplace. Betty rushed over and found her kneeling, her arm round Charlie, who was still clutching the travelling bag. Charlie batted a feather away from her face and sneezed. Is it over? Did we break the curse? I... I think so. Betty looked around her. Everything looked as she remembered, and for a scary moment she wondered if nothing had changed. Had they saved any of the Widdershins before them? I can't hear the crows anymore. And if Saoirse didn't fall... She hesitated. But where is she? I'm here. 
Sorsha Spellthorn stepped out from the shadows. Her matted hair reached halfway down her back, glowing like rust in the half-light. Silvery streaks of dried tears crisscrossed her brown face, which, now it was no longer contorted with suspicion and dark thoughts, had a certain beauty about it. Widdershins, she said slowly, as if for the first time, the first time of not saying it in hatred. You came for me. You saved me. Betty swallowed, meeting Sorsha's eyes. For the first time since discovering the horrible truth about her link to Prue, she felt the burden lift. The Widdershins had nothing to be ashamed of any more. Yes. Thank you. Sorsha's eyes lingered on the travelling bag. But why? Did my sister... She stopped and blinked like there was something in her eye. Did Prue send you? Betty shook her head. I'm sorry, she didn't. But it's because of her that we were able to use the... your magic. She gestured to the travelling bag. The objects got passed down over time to us. We each received one and could only use the magic of the one we were given. Over time? How much time? Over a century, Fliss answered. Sorsha nodded, studying each of them. Her eyes lingered on Colton. And you? Are you a Widdershins? Uh, no. Just someone who got caught up with all this. Sorsha stared at the travelling bag. I thought I'd never leave that tower alive. I know. Betty's voice was hoarse. All those days you spent in there, all the words you scratched into the walls, malice, cowardice. Escape, Sorsha interrupted. She smiled, sadly but warmly. That's the only word that matters now. As well as forgiveness, perhaps. Fliss frowned. You mean you forgive Prue for what she did? Sorsha's eyes clouded with pain. If what you say is true, she's gone now, long gone, and somehow I don't think what she did would have made her happy. But she was jealous of you, Betty blurted out, of what you were and what you had, so jealous and bitter she wanted you out of the way at any cost. Yes, she was, Sorsha agreed, but jealous, bitter people don't suddenly find that those feelings go away when what they envy becomes theirs. They simply find something else to be jealous and bitter about, because it was never about what the other person had. It's about what they themselves lack. Betty's cheeks were suddenly warm and wet. To her embarrassment, she found she was crying. Sorsha's words had touched something within her, a deep-rooted guilt that she had been holding in for a long time and trying to pretend she didn't feel. There were times when she had envied her sisters, particularly Fliss for her beauty and charm. But now she smiled and met Fliss's eyes, and they shared a look of love and understanding that only sisters could. They didn't need to compete. Their differences didn't have to set them apart. Together, their differences only made them stronger. There are warders patrolling everywhere out there, Colton cut in. He had moved to the window and was now holding himself so tensely that Betty thought the slightest touch would make him jump like a coiled spring. So come on, Betty Widdershins. How do I get out of this one? Because I sure as eggs can't stay in Crowstone. 
with me, Sorsha said simply, glancing at the travelling bag. You mean it's time to give my pinch of magic back? Charlie asked, her voice trembling. Yes, Charlie. Betty took the nesting dolls out, running her thumb over the beautifully painted smooth wood. It's time to give it all back. She passed the dolls to Sorsha, then watched in silence as Fliss and Charlie handed back the mirror and the travelling bag. Sorsha held them all for a long moment. Unexpectedly, she handed the dolls back to Betty. Keep them. Betty stared at the dolls, longing to take them. She hadn't expected that returning the gifts would be such a wrench. I'm grateful, but I can't. It wouldn't be fair to my sisters. Their power is for you all, said Sorsha. You've earned it. She gave another sad little smile. Besides, they're the perfect gift for sisters who look after one another. She pushed them into Betty's hand. Real sisters. Thank you, Betty whispered, stunned. A delicious feeling of gratitude warmed through her body, as intoxicating as the magic itself. Fliss moved towards Colton. So this time, it really is goodbye, she said softly. Colton nodded, his dark eyes sombre. I suppose it is. A floorboard creaked somewhere above. Betty? Granny's voice thundered. Felicity? Charlotte? The girls froze at the sound of footsteps on the stairs. Fliss was the first to snap out of it. Go, now, she whispered. Colton hugged Charlie quickly, then gave Fliss a swift kiss on the cheek. She touched her fingers to her face. What was that for? For luck, he grinned suddenly. But I think you girls have already changed that for yourselves. He turned to Betty, reaching for her hand. I'll miss you, Betty Widdishins. Don't ever change. He hesitated. Friends? Betty squeezed his hand. Something like that. And Colton. Her voice became muffled as he pulled her into a hug. Thanks. Colton grinned. It was a pleasure. Well, some of it. Sorsha tucked the mirror into her clothing and reached into the travelling bag, ready. Farewell, Widdishins girls. You have your own magic now. Then linking her arm with Colton's, she whispered something so quietly that none of them heard. In an eye blink, they were gone, with only a scattering of crow's feathers floating on the air to say they'd ever been there at all. Jumping jackdaws, Granny shrieked, startling them all. The girls whipped round to face her. A black feather had stuck straight up in her hair, making her look like a cross old turkey. Just where have you three been? Crowstone is on lockdown. There are prisoners on the loose and you three go gallivanting. She peered at Fliss. I see you took my advice and finally cut that mane of yours. We don't need any more complaints about it getting into the customer's beer. But that still doesn't explain where you've all been. She wagged her finger at Bessie. This was your idea, wasn't it, hmm? And what in whiskey's name are all these feathers? It looks like every crow across the misty marshes has been massacred here. She eyed Charlie suspiciously. Is this you bringing dead things home to bury again? This has got to stop, young lady. No, Granny, said Charlie in a small voice. 
I didn't bring anything home this time. Well, nothing dead, anyway. Charlie, Granny said in a warning tone, but Charlie rushed on. We were too busy saving Saucer Spellthorn and breaking the curse. Curse? What curse? Granny threw up her hands. You girls and your games, you wear me out. It's not the time for games when that prison bell is tolling, do you hear? Yes, Granny, they chorused. Granny softened, exhausted by her tirade. She pulled out a chair and plonked herself down, using a wrinkled hand to fan her face. Mind you, our Clarissa was the same with her games. She always loved the story of Saucer Spellthorn, too. Which story was that, Granny? Betty asked carefully, with a warning glance at Charlie to hold her tongue. Granny frowned at her. The tale of how she vanished from the tower, of course. Everyone knows that. Why, Clarissa and your father used to drive me mad, making me tell them that story so they could act it all out. Clarissa loved pretending to be Saucia. Poor Barney had to be an imp or a crow. She snorted. She's no less bossy now. You mean she's alive? Betty asked. Granny stared at her in astonishment. Are you feeling quite well, Betty? You're acting peculiar, not your usual sensible self at all. She held up a hand to Betty's forehead. You don't feel overly warm. Betty forced a smile. An unfamiliar feeling trickled over her like warm sand. For the first time in as long as she could remember, she felt content, dazed but happy. We were just... Just having a joke with you. I'm fine, Granny, really. It's true, she realised. I really am fine. Hmm. Granny let her hand drop and heaved herself up. A joke, eh? She collected a glass from behind the counter and poured herself a nip of whiskey. Let's see how funny you think being grounded for two weeks with extra chores is. Perhaps we should ask your father what he thinks. Look, here he comes now. What? Betty turned as the door rattled and someone pushed it open from the outside. Hope welled within her. It couldn't be, surely. Barney Widdershin stood on the doormat, stamping dead leaves off his boots. His cheeks were red with cold. You three, he scolded, closing the door against the wind. I've been looking everywhere. He paused, a twinkle in his eyes, as he took in their shocked, frozen faces. I just hope Granny's done the telling off part so I don't have to. Father, Betty managed, disbelieving. The dolls rattled in her shaking hand. Beyond breaking the curse, she hadn't considered what other consequences could arise from their actions. But here he was. Slivers of ice fell away from her heart. They would never get back the years they had lost with him, but at least now they had time to make it up. What, what are you doing here? He chuckled. I live here last time I checked. Did they let you out early? Fliss asked, her voice strained. None of the girls had moved an inch. Out of where? Their father stepped towards Charlie, sweeping her up into his arms so that she was perched almost on his shoulder. Charlie stared back at him stiffly, then slowly reached out and poked him on the nose. Prison, she said. Prison? Their father laughed, poking her back. You cheeky little beast. I'm a respectable man. Just about, said Granny, rolling her eyes. You won't get any sense out of them, Barnaby. They're playing one of their daft games. I've already told them they're grounded for two weeks. 
Before Granny could say any more, Betty found herself walking over to her father. Tentatively, she put her arms round him, half afraid he would vanish like marsh mist. A moment later, she felt Fliss beside her and her father's breath in her hair. You're real, she murmured into his coat. It smelled of crunchy leaves and cold, and beneath it, he was warm and solid and there. Sweet as pumpkin pie when they want to be, said Granny suspiciously, but don't think that'll change anything. Grounded. Two weeks. It's not fair, Charlie said, glowering. Not after what we've just done. I'll talk her down to a week, Father whispered. Betty turned to Fliss and they shared a secret smile. A week's not that long, Fliss said, her eyes shining. No, Betty agreed. Not now we've got forever. Epilogue You know, Fliss said thoughtfully as she was drying some glasses when the week was almost up, ever since we came back and saw Father, I've been thinking. About? Betty looked up from the board on which she was chalking the specials. Whether we could have done more to change things for Mother. Fliss's voice dropped to a whisper. We had the bag, Betty. What if we'd gone back to the night she died, changed her mind somehow, told her not to go out into the fog? Even if we'd thought of it, she'd probably have left even faster, seeing the three of us from the future, Betty said wryly. Privately, she'd harboured the same regrets, but realistically she knew that nothing else could have been done once the curse was triggered. It was time to let the past lie and plan for the future, now that they had one. We'd made a decision, Fliss. We had to break the curse and get back to Granny, and we did it. We saved ourselves and nine other Widdishins girls. How many people can say they've done something like that? I know, Fliss conceded. You're right. Not to mention breaking not one, but two people out of Crowstone Prison, Betty added. I'd say plenty's changed. You've managed to go a whole week without kissing anyone. She ducked, grinning, as Fliss flicked the towel she was holding at her with a playful, Hey! Fliss tossed the towel down, looking thoughtful. I think I'll hold off on the kissing for now, she said, staring through the window into the distance, until someone worth kissing comes along. Probably a good thing, said Betty. You were running out of options in Crowstone anyway. Ow! She laughed as Fliss grabbed the towel and threw it at her. Then her grin faded. What we have now is enough. More than we could have hoped for. Expecting everything to be perfect would be like expecting Charlie to put on a lace frock and play tea parties. Eh? Charlie demanded, crawling out from the fireplace at the mention of her name. I ain't wearing no frock. Good thing too, said Betty. Look at you covered in soot. What are you doing under there? Charlie stuck her tongue out, looking for Hoppet. You'd better hop it before Granny sees you, said Betty, nodding to the door. Here she comes now. Meddling magpies, Charlie muttered, frantically brushing ashes from her clothes. The doors of the poacher's pocket opened and Granny came shuffling in with a basket of groceries. Hot on her heels was Fingerty, laden down with a further two baskets. Might as well open now, girls, 
she called, setting her shopping down. It's five minutes early, strictly speaking, but I'll make an exception for you, Seamus, seeing as you're so helpful these days. Yep, Fingerty nodded, winking at the girls. And a hero too, Bunny. He puffed out his scrawny chest. Captured the crookedest crook in Crowstone, let's not forget that. Wouldn't dream of it said Granny. Fliss, fetch Mr. Fingerty his usual, and then the three of you can get yourselves down to the harbour. Your father wants you. Father? At the harbour? Betty glanced at Fliss, bemused. What could he want them for? It wasn't market day. No trading ships would be in. Why was Granny wearing such a knowing smirk? Granny, what exactly is... Granny waved a hand, scattering tobacco from her unlit pipe. You'll have to find out for yourselves, and... She stopped, glaring. Charlie? Charlie! What is all this soot doing on my floor? Charlie scuttled out from under a table. Father needs me, she yelled, making a getaway through the door. Bye! Come on, said Fliss to Betty, throwing down her apron. Let's go! Giggling, they left Granny grumbling and shot after Charlie through the twisting streets, past the crossroads and ferry point, down to the harbour. Where is he? Charlie demanded as they surveyed the fishing boats. She squinted against the sun, her breath misting the crisp November air. Wait, I see him. But whose boat is that? Betty shielded her eyes, gazing ahead. Her father's stout figure was visible on a little vessel bobbing on the waves next to the jetty. It gleamed under fresh layers of jewel-green paint. It's ours, she whispered, her heart soaring. He did it. He finally fixed it. Before she knew it, she was running, skidding along the jetty with Charlie and Fliss at her heels until they reached it. Their father chuckled. Well, it's about time. I could say the same to you. Betty retorted as they scrambled aboard. Father unwound the mooring, swaying easily with the motion of the boat. He scanned the sky as they pushed off easily, gliding through the water. Weather's fine, and it's only just past midday. We may as well make an afternoon of it. So where to? Marshfoot, Betty said at once. Marshfoot? Father repeated. He shrugged. Marshfoot it is. Betty settled back in her seat, eyes on the smudge of land on the horizon. Marshfoot might not be as ambitious as some of the escapades she'd been planning, but it was a start, and any uncharted territory, however small, was still an adventure, she decided. Still a triumph. There was time for bigger, time for further. There was time. All right there, Fliss, father asked, shooting Fliss a concerned look. Fliss nodded, taking deep breaths as she turned a familiar shade of green. I've been better, she muttered, catching Betty's eyes. Been worse, too. What's this boat called? Charlie inquired. I didn't see a name. She was right, Betty realised with a jolt. It should have one, Father, she insisted. Of course. Father steered them to the left. I thought I'd leave that to you girls to decide. We should call it the travelling bag, Charlie declared at once. Their father laughed. You can't name a boat after a bag. Why not, Charlie demanded. Boats are named after lots of things, and most of them are stupid. Charlie's right, Betty agreed. It was... 
It was from a story we heard once, about a magical bag that could take a person anywhere. It's perfect. She fell silent, realising for the first time that this was a tale only they knew. For in this life, there had been no travelling bag or mirror handed down, only the dolls from Saoirse herself. It was a past only they remembered, a secret only they shared, one which had forged their future. Her hand found its way into her pocket, where a smooth wooden shape nestled snug and warm. She stroked her thumb over the doll's sleek surface, recalling that other journey to Marshfoot, on a foggy, fateful night when she had been so unprepared and unknowing. She who tries, triumphs, Betty whispered to herself. She was Betty the Brave, Betty the Explorer, and with her sisters at her side, she was ready for anything. A Pinch of Magic was written by Michelle Harrison and read by Nikki Diss. It was produced by Heavy Entertainment. This has been a presentation of Simon & Schuster Audio.